Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Bloor Street Capital's Battery Metals Conference. After being up 140% in 2022, lithium is down 60% in 2023, and many lithium stocks are down 50% or more on the year, creating huge opportunities for the coming year. Albemarle and SQM, the world's two largest lithium producers, are taking advantage of the pullback and have made investments in or have acquired other lithium developers and explorers. The demand for lithium will only grow, driven by the stratospheric growth in EVs having gone from just 3 million in 2020 to 10 million in 2022. Fast markets are projecting sales of 14 to 15 million EVs for 2023. So where are lithium prices going in 2024 and is the pullback buying opportunity? To answer these questions, we put together a list of amazing speakers from John Champaglia of Sprout Asset Management, followed by Phoebe O'Hara of Fast Markets, Mac Whale of Cormac Securities, Keith Phillips of Piedmount Lithium, Robert Vintak of Standard Lithium, Chris Dornbos of E3 Lithium, and we conclude with Howard Klein of RK Equity. As a reminder, we have an open chat panel on the right-hand side of your screen. Ask questions, make a comment, or just say hello. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Bloor Street Capital. And you can follow us on Spotify as well as Apple Podcast. We hope you enjoy the conference. John, thank you for joining us today. Now, governments around the world are adopting net zero policies that have created opportunities for investors who are shifting away from fossil fuels. The adoption of electric vehicles continues to accelerate, and this is driving demand for many metals, including lithium. Now, Sprott offers products for investors to capitalize off this energy transition trend. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, we've, uh, we've definitely, in the last uh, two and a half years, Notice there is a growing trend amongst uh, investors globally around playing this long-term thematic around energy transition. And the energy transition in our minds is really about generating cleaner energy from different technologies. It's about the transmission of that energy and electrification. And lastly, it's about energy storage, which is just another way of saying batteries, uh, predominantly for electric vehicles. So. The world is, is clearly focused on generating cleaner energy to decarbonize economies and lower greenhouse gas emissions with the hope of achieving net zero targets uh, out in 2050, uh, which is all designed obviously to bring the Earth's temperature down. When we talk to investors, it's, it's very clear they're starting to understand that this transition is gonna be incredibly mineral intense. So it's, it's very different than, than the fossil fuel-based systems, which are more about liquids and gases. Um, the energy transition will, will require a lot of minerals, and many of these minerals are critical in nature because they're, not, uh, they're, they're relatively new in terms of their development. I think lithium is the, great, the greatest example. It's a very nascent industry. And prior to the adoption of electric vehicles, we really didn't use lithium for a whole lot of things. So lithium is the one a common element across every single battery chemistry for electric vehicles. And as a result, with the expected, expected adoption of EVs over the coming decades, uh, we will need substantially more lithium. And there is a real lithium race going on right now to secure the necessary supplies so that it doesn't become a, a bottleneck in the supply chain. So um, we think it's a, a multi-decade transition. It's not gonna replace fossil fuels anytime soon, but I think the world, as it adds more energy capacity, uh, is increasingly focused on making investments in cleaner technologies. 
And you guys have um, three different products, uh, the Energy Transition Materials ETF, the Lithium Miners ETF, and the Copper ETF. Can you talk to me about the interest you've seen among investors in these products and maybe the flows you're seeing into these products? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, ETFs, I think, are very popular um, vehicles for investors to get exposure to different thematics. Uh, and I think the reason is pretty simple. Uh, for the average investor, um, it's I think it's overwhelming for them to sit down and think about, okay, I like the long-term prospects of this particular metal. How do I go about investing in it? Do I pick one or two companies? Or do I buy, do I try to get exposure to the physical commodity if I can? Uh, or do I buy a basket of different companies, you know, all packaged up for me within an ETF, which is very easy to buy, low cost of ownership, very transparent. Um, and that's really the path that we've taken with a, a number of our product, uh, recent product offerings. We've taken our knowledge and expertise in, in uh, metals and mining, and we've worked with different service providers, uh, one of them being NASDAQ. Uh, their index group where we basically work on the development of the investment universe which is very important what we find with a lot of investors is they want the pure play exposure to a thematic um, and and it's very hard for them sometimes to get it because with a lot of these diversified mining companies for example you might think you're getting exposure let's say to copper but in reality most of the revenue at that company coming from iron ore or coal so we really look company by company to figure out what is its role in this energy transition thematic, what exposures does it provide to investors? So we start with the uh, investment universe, uh, defining that to really become as pure play as possible. Um, second of all, we're constantly scanning the landscape for new companies, spin-offs, IPOs. Obviously, companies are changing their business mix and their strategies all the time. So when we develop our indexes, it's not a static process. Every six months, we basically look at the entire investment universe from scratch, try to figure out how these companies have changed, which companies have come and gone. Uh, we basically rebalance the index with new constituents. So it's a very dynamic process. And I think our expertise as active managers, uh, you know, integrating that into, the, into a passive approach and making it, uh, making it dynamic over time, I think is what investors uh, are, are interested in from, from, from our suite of products. For sure. And you guys have a lot of different metals to choose from, but I want to focus in on copper. You know, a traditional gas car uses about 50 pounds of copper, but an electric vehicle uses 150 pounds, and that's helped copper hang in relatively well this year. Uh, Sprott, as you said, has an ETF focused on copper. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, copper, I think, is going to play a really large role in the energy transition for, for two reasons. One, it's really the backbone of electrification. So if the world wants to continue to electrify different, uh, you know, daily uh, things that we use in our lives or industrial processes, transportation, uh, copper is going to be a key part of energy gen generation as well as uh, transportation. So copper, I think, is is going to be the the, the real backbone and workhorse of of the energy transition. Copper, obviously, we've been mining for thousands of years. We understand copper. It's a very large market, almost two hundred billion dollars a year but it needs to grow uh, substantially over the next 20 years. We, we need to grow the copper production somewhere between, let's say 50 and 80%, uh, which is a pretty daunting task given how big the industry already is. And so what we've done at Sprott is designed the Sprott Junior Copper Miners ETF. Uh, the ticker on that is COPJ. It's really designed uh, to give you exposure to a broad basket of 
companies that are uh, smaller producers, emerging developers and exploration companies. There's also been a lot of M&A activity in the space. And the reason for that is everyone is viewing copper as a strategic mineral now. Everything from the big diversified mining companies down to the you know gold, traditional gold companies like Barrick Gold, which have been very open about their viewing copper as a strategic metal for the coming decades. So we've seen a lot of M&A activity in that space. I think the majors, you know, if they find high quality projects in, in good jurisdictions, they're very keen to buy those projects and, and ultimately build them or expand them, then you know, continue to, to, uh, to develop new projects from scratch, given the very long lead times for some of these projects. So it's a very interesting way to, to gain exposure uh, to, this, to, this, to this, this space. Now, another component of the energy transition movement is nuclear energy. According to the World Nuclear Association, there are 440 nuclear reactors operating globally with another 60 under construction. And this is driving demand for uranium. Uh, Sprott's most successful energy transition project is the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust product. Uh, a lot of retail investors follow you guys specifically for uranium. Why do you think that fund has been so successful? Yeah, I mean, we, uh, I was, I was first start off by saying we totally uh, embrace this idea that nuclear energy is part of the energy transition. We felt that way from day one. It's, it's very um, reassuring that a number of governments around the world have publicly acknowledged a similar policy in the last couple of years as they are shifting back to nuclear energy uh, for a few reasons. One, provides a very low carbon footprint. It provides incredibly reliable baseload power. Uh, and three, provides energy security. And uh, unfortunately, in the last year and a half, we've learned what happens when a, when a, when a country does not have secure uh, supply of its own energy. It is at the mercy of sometimes uh, aggressive nations and weaponization of commodities. So this, the narrative and the perspective and the public support for nuclear energy has changed enormously uh, since COP26, I would say, which is, which is just uh, two years ago. Um, that is obviously attracting a lot of interest in, in uranium because it is the primary fuel that is going to power not just uh, the existing uh, fleet of nuclear reactors that you mentioned, but for the, let's call another 150 reactors that are in different stages of construction and or planning. So we've got a very uh, constructive long-term demand profile for, for uranium. Against that, we have a very large looming deficit of primary production of uranium because for so many years we had prices that were so low uh, companies were not incentivized to produce uranium they weren't incentivized to develop their projects they had no way of financing them and so we've we've lost a lot of time with uh, many new projects so the industry right now is in the process of resetting itself uh, a big part of that reset is higher prices which have allowed a lot of the mines on care and maintenance to come back online. So we've seen mines in Canada, Africa, Australia, uh, the US slowly start to come back online, which is a really great uh, outcome because it's helping a lot of these uranium mining companies. Um, and you know, we don't think we're done. We, we think that even though the price has gone from the high 20s per pound to currently about $74 a pound, we, we still don't have incentive pricing to really build some of the key key new mines that are scheduled to be built, we believe, in this cycle. So investors are attracted to that supply-demand dynamic 
Uh, and we think that even though the price has more than doubled in the last uh, year and a half, that the price still needs to reach uh, higher levels to, to really deal with this uh, supply deficit that is going to really uh, widen around 2030. And we've seen a lot of wide divergence in performance this year between various metals. As we talked about, you know, uranium is in a bull market, but then if you look at lithium, it's down about 60%. What do you think is driving this divergence in the market or what's your view on that? Yeah, well, we have a very broad basket of different minerals and metals that are playing a role in this transition. And we've built our product suite to allow investors to pick and choose depending on where we are in the cycle. And every commodity has a different uh, different supply and demand fundamentals and as at a different spot in its cycle. Lithium, for example, in 2021 and 2022 was the best performing commodity in the world by far. It went parabolic. The price went from about 20,000 a metric ton all the way to 80,000 a metric ton. Uh, I think most market participants, including ourselves, did not feel that was sustainable uh, because if you look at the cost structure of the industry, it's, it's substantially lower than 80,000 and just a few years ago, um, lithium was at $15,000 a metric ton. So clearly there was a short term uh, bottleneck that, that created incredible pricing uh, pressure on lithium. This year we've had a, a pretty sharp reversal as you mentioned, lithium price is down substantially this year. I think that's really a function of one, it being a nascent industry. It's still, it's still trying to find its way, it's still maturing. You know, when you think about the copper industry, which has been operating for thousands of years, when you think about it, um, the lithium industry is very new. It's still it's still going through its development phase, and I think that makes its supply profile very lumpy. It also um, the demand side is also lumpy because EVs, um, while they've been growing at 35, 40 percent in the last few years, they have slowed a little bit this year. I think part of that is because uh, general economy has been, been softer around the world. Uh, interest rates have gone up a lot when you think about the cost of, of car ownership. Financing is a key part. Uh, so you have seen a moderation in demand in terms of EVs. Now, are we gonna grow uh, still at 25 or 30%? Yeah, probably. It's not 40%, and so that expectation has clearly taken some of the energy out of the lithium, uh, the lithium price, but I think longer term, there are really great opportunities in lithium space because of all the different minerals that we look at. It's the one that is going to have to grow the fastest in terms of new greenfield production. The M&A activity in the, site, in the sector has been very good. Um, it really reinforces to us that everyone is trying to get strategically positioned to secure the best assets. So they've got very robust pipelines of, uh, of uh, future production that they can sell to the OEMs. So yes, it's been bumpy, um, not totally unexpected given the meteoric rise of lithium in, in 21 and 22. It's gonna find its, it's, gonna find its footing. I think it's, 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 it's definitely basing here. Uh, and the price is still at a good level that the lithium companies can remain very profitable. Interesting. Yeah, definitely a lot of geopolitical considerations to look out for when it comes to the energy transition. But right now, you guys are on the road uh, marketing across North America and Europe your investment products to clients. Is the energy transition a major topic that they're bringing up? What questions are they asking you? Yeah, we've been uh, we've been very busy. I would say the last two years um, 
talking about this story and you know we started off with uranium it was it was really the 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 beachhead for us in in this broader category and you know as we were talking to different funds and i got to tell you they were mostly in europe um you know we were talking about uranium to funds and they, and i would ask them what kind of fund do you run like tell me a little bit about your strategy and we would uh increasingly find we were stumbling into funds or sleeves or pods at hedge funds or whatever that were focused on energy transition and and sometimes they came from traditional energy backgrounds meaning they used to be an oil and gas fund uh, or traditional energy or or had a utility or infrastructure background and they were starting to broaden their 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 area of expertise to include uh, not just uranium but a, a whole host of different uh, renewable energy technologies as well as energy transition technologies and minerals so it really started there and it really got us thinking about okay this is much bigger than we originally thought and I think a lot of investors are, are one they're looking at those signals uh, and they're asking themselves okay if the world is starting to shift from a fossil fuel based system to uh, a, a system that is going to be focused on cleaner technologies um, and it's going to play out for the coming decades this isn't a one or two year fad this is a multi-decade investment how do I how do I take advantage of this so um, we think more and more investors are, are starting to understand um, energy systems, how energy is produced, the, all the critical minerals that, that we rely on for many of these technologies. And I, I would say many investors are doing a, a lot of research in this space. They historically were invested uh, basically downstream. So they were invested, you know, as far as 15, 20 years ago, they were invested in solar and, and uh, solar companies or solar manufacturing or wind. But now they're thinking about the upstream opportunity. Okay, if we're going to build all this downstream capacity, what do we need upstream? And the upstream opportunity, I think, is, is really compelling because at the end of the day, you need these minerals to, to, to build you know, all of this capacity downstream. So I would say there's definitely been a, a shift from upstream investments, uh, excuse me, from downstream to upstream investments. And that's where a lot of these discussions go around all the critical minerals that, uh, that we're going to require. I would definitely also say that we're seeing a broadening of interest, particularly this year, where we're seeing more generalist investors reaching out to us that are interested in some of these thematics. Uh, it's just too hard to ignore. You know, they're just becoming more and more mainstream. They're in the media every day. Um, if you think about five years ago, owning an electric car, that was for a very privileged few. Now you've got electric cars where the price points are actually at the same point of gasoline engine cars. So the accessibility for an electric car has changed dramatically. You know, it, it used to take us years to build a million electric cars. Now we're building a million a year. So we're seeing an acceleration. I think it's becoming more top of mind. I think younger generations of investors in particular are very interested in this as they're, they, they seem to be much more focused on climate change issues. Um, they want to be part of the solution. Um, so I think, you know, we've seen a... a, a We've definitely seen a younger uh, group of investors engage with us. We've seen a very uh, a, a broader group of investors, go, you know, from specialty type of funds to more generalist funds. And you know, because some of these industries and companies are still fairly small, um, we think you know we're still at the very early stages um, of this cycle. And there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to be big winners. There's going to be companies that are going to be losers. Um, it's it's going to be volatile, and I think a lot of investors, because of that, are opting to just buy baskets of these stocks and 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 riding the thematic 
Um, and I think that's where some of our ETFs have, have come into play. Absolutely. And, and given the fact that we're still in the early age, uh, days of this cycle, do you think you guys will be launching more products uh, within the energy transition space? Yeah, I mean, we're constantly looking at, at obviously trends um, and how new technologies are being deployed. And we're looking at uh, competitor offerings in the marketplace to see if they are, in fact, doing a good, a good job of providing exposure uh, to these minerals. And, you know, we often find that they're constructed by, you know, generalist kind of indexing uh, shops and ETS sponsors that don't have any real expertise in, in metals and mining. And, it's very easy for us to come up with something that we believe is more compelling because it's it's either giving you more pure play exposure uh, or a more thoughtful way to index some of these these strategies. So we're we're constantly looking on the horizon. I would say one of the themes for us in the next 12 months is going to be copper. Um, we have a very long-term bullish view on copper. It's a very big market. I think institutional investors are going to gravitate to copper because it's very large, established, and liquid. Um, unlike some of these other metals, which are still earlier stage in their development, um, they're more volatile as a result. And copper is something that I think is, is just uh, more, more understood by institutional investors. So we're, we've definitely got a few things in our, in our pipeline related to, to copper specifically. Well, we look forward to seeing that come out the pipeline. John, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your insights. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice to see you again. Hi, Mac. Thank you very much for joining us today. You and your team spend much time analyzing the lithium industry, both from a supply and demand point of view and also from a valuation point of view. And this is where I want to spend most of our conversation. And I want to begin with a top-down or a macro approach on what's driving the lithium price. It's been very volatile this year. It traded as high as $80,000 a ton in late 2022. Now in 2023, it got as low as $20,000 a ton. And the equities, of course, have also been very volatile in the back of this. But Mike, why don't you just give us an overview of what's happening with the lithium price and why it's been so volatile this year? Sure. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. I think the, the number one uh, focus at that most people are looking at is the China price. Um, that Chinese price is very much predicated on demand uh, in China, and that is the market that has the biggest uh, EV penetration. Um, and so I, I would imagine most of your listeners will know that uh, the Chinese economy is under a lot of pressure, there's a lot of concerns around uh, what growth will look like. And so what we've seen in, in every one of these cycles, we see the EV uh, penetration rate go up every single cycle and take away market share from internal combustion engines. Eventually, you're going to get to a point where those sales of, of EVs will, will perhaps also roll over in a downturn. It hasn't happened yet. A lot of people are concerned that it, this is now going to happen, at least in China. So that pressure on the economy in general is translating into worries over whether the supply chain itself is, uh, say, oversupplied with material. And so you've seen uh, inventories get depleted at the beginning part of the year when pricing was high, as you mentioned, $75,000, $80,000 a ton. 
now we saw through the summer a small recovery in the price, and that was restocking from some of the, um, the using of that material as EV uh, production started to ramp up in the, Q, in the third quarter. And now we're sitting in a situation where a lot of the trading houses are looking at a situation where demand might be weakening and inventories are, are high enough. And so the demand, um, the, the, the demand now for new materials to fill that supply have, has weakened. So that, that's why we see the price now down around $30,000 a ton. So that's a good overview. Let's move on now. I want to discuss your valuation methodology. How do you value lithium equities and how is your approach different with producers versus developers versus sure. Explorcos? So when you look at the producers, there's only about eight of them. You know, if I go back to 2007, when I started covering a lot of these stocks, there was really only two. There were the vast majority of material came out of basically two resources. Uh, now we have um, uh, eight main producers um, and they trade on different uh, platforms. They trade on different markets, but they're also, um, they actually have different mix exposure and different customer exposure. So when you actually dig into that, the only real proper way to compare them is just like as on the EVD EBITDA or price to cash flow basis. We choose EVD EBITDA. We, we like that metric for several different reasons. But when you look at the how much material they produce and the price, I think that gives the most equal way of evaluating the various producers. So, um, you know, we look back at the beginning of the year when the pricing was very high. Uh, these companies traded as a group closer to seven to 10 times EVD EBITDA. Now they're down around uh, six times, so as low as four, um, four times EVD EBITDA, which is quite remarkably low, given the fact that the EBITDA margin of all these companies is uh, we just haven't seen it as high as, as it's been for the last two years. So it's a, it's a very funny dynamic. It's as if the market is saying, hey, producers, next year, you're, um, you could be facing a year in which your EBITDA is lower. And so you're getting a situation where if you're running an index, you're looking at that year over year change and it looks negative. Yet, if you're from a fundamental point of view as an analyst covering the stocks themselves, those are fantastic. Uh, metrics on performance. It's just that they're lower than the year before. So that's what's impacting the multiple. Um, when you look at a developer, you're in a situation where you don't have uh, earnings, you don't have EBITDA, and you don't have exposure to the spot as it is today. So what we normally do is run a, a discounted cash flow on the, on the actual free cash flow you're going to get from the project over time. And you're doing a, you're discounting that stream of cash flows, and you get a, an NPV, a, a net present value, and we just compare that to the, the market cap of the stock. So on those late stage developers, you're really just doing an NPV. So on an NPV basis, most of those developers, the most, the more advanced ones, are trading at like 0.5 times NAV. So they're trading at 50% of the value of the project at a reasonable price. Um, those used to be 70-80%. So they've come off a lot too. Um, the third tier of companies that you have are the exploration companies or the early stage developers. Uh, they typically trade on like a enterprise value per tons of resource. 
So it's a, it's a metric I hate. <laughs> and the reason I do is because it's basically just saying there's this much material in the ground. So the market cap ought to be this big. The problem is, um, in many cases, the economic value of uh, to extract those resources from the ground can't even be realized economically. And so the EV, like a good example, is a brine in which you know you pump on the resource and the brine doesn't even come to the surface. In such a situation, you tell me how much do you think the resource is worth? It's basically worth zero. So to me. An EV per ton of resource is a is a poor metric that you shouldn't really use. I think you can be smarter than that. And what we do in our job is to run an MPV on that resource. So it's I think a much stronger uh, methodology to use, um, and it gives you a, a narrower range of value um, when you look at the various companies. So to me, that's a better metric. And Mac, what about the type of mining? Do hard rock miners in Australia have a different valuation or trade at a different valuation than a brine producer in South yes. America? Yes. So that's a that's a great question. There's two things that are going on there. The hard rocks in general. If you go back, say, ten years, the hard there weren't really many hard rock plays. They were all brines. You had you had a, a few producers and you had a bunch of TSX listed brine plays that were Argentina and Chile. And those um, traded uh, at premiums because they actually produce chemicals. The output from a brine operation is lithium carbonate or lithium, well, in some cases hydroxide, but think of it as or lithium chloride, but it's lithium carbonate, a chemical that goes into a battery. The hard rock mines effectively produce a concentrate, which then is sold to a chemical company. So you're not producing chemicals, you're producing an intermediary. So much lower capex, much quicker to get into production, but you're not producing a finished product. It's more of a commodity. Um, so there's a difference between the capex intensity for those two types of businesses. And as a result, the return you would expect is, is actually different. And that translates to a different valuation. When you look in Australia, the the Aussie listed stocks tend to be hard rock mining companies. So when you look at those, they also have a captive audience where in Australia, there's the portfolio managers have to have a certain percentage uh, that is invested in Australian listed stocks. That means they have a captive market for a relatively small number of stocks. So those that's also inflated metrics. When you look at the Aussie listed names, they trade, um, easily 20 to 30 percent higher if not even greater than the tsx listed names of the similar type of company so you've got kind of jurisdictional distortions but you also have a difference between a fundamental difference between the business of, a, of making lithium chemicals from a brine and making a concentrate from a hard rock mine mac one of the stocks you cover is lithium americas has been recently separated into two different equities one asset will be focused on the Argentinian asset, and the other asset will be focused on the American assets or Thacker Pass. Why don't you just take us through this company in terms of uh, from a valuation point of view, but also from a risk point of view, and how each component has been separated or how each component has been valued differently? Yeah, it's just 
it's an interesting example of a separation. We don't see these very often where shareholders receive a share of each of the new companies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, when we see that, uh, when we've seen that in the past, uh, there's always a risk that one part of the business is more valued than another part. And that's exactly what we're seeing in, in this situation. There were, Black did several financings uh, back when the Bureau of Land Management first approved the Thacker Pass project, that those financings obviously brought in a lot of US focused investors that wanted to have exposure to, to Thacker Pass being uh, in Nevada. However, the history of the company is actually in Argentina, where their, their Cauchari Alaraz brine project is actually now in operation. So if all things were equal, a, a company or a project that's just about to enter into production, that would be more highly valued than a company that's in construction. Um, however, one, Thacker Pass is uh, being in the U.S., it has the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act exposure, um, and it has a lot of um, potential for DOE loan support, whereas the brine operation in Argentina is exposed to country risk, also exposed to the, the spot price falling, unlike Thacker Pass, where the, it hasn't produced anything yet, so it's future pricing that you're, that you're looking at. Um, and also has concerns around whether um, the company can bring uh, cash flow out of Argentina and at what cost would that cash flow come back to shareholders. So you have a, a completely different set of risks. One is one's operational commodity price risk, but has country risk on the, on the negative. On the other one, it's all about development of a project with all the risks associated with um, construction and ramp but then it has all the positives associated with US, uh, the US exposure. So it's a very interesting situation where shareholders get uh, sort of an equal share in both, company, both companies, but what we, what we don't fully understand, or it will be interesting to see how over time, how these two uh, different stocks actually trade, because um, prior to the separation, um, my valuation is $55 um, US uh, per share. And, um, you know, we could easily see a very volatile period where it just doesn't get necessarily split in two equal halves. Um, and then it could take weeks for this, to, the, the trading to settle out to a sort of a final valuation for each segment. And it is a very interesting situation, like you mentioned, because each each asset kind of caters to a different risk parameter or a different type of investor depending on the risk profile. That's right. That's right. If you're interested in, um, so for instance, Lithium Americas um, bought uh, Millennial and Arena, two other developers building projects in Argentina. So if you own those companies, you now own LAC, and now you now own LAC plus Thacker Pass as two separate entities. So the the real question mark is, do those investors still want exposure to LAC or do they want to monetize that investment through uh, the investments that they made in Arena and Millennials? So there's a question mark there. Whereas if you're a U.S. investor, clearly you don't have interest in the Argentinian assets at all, uh, but you would have interest in holding to holding onto Thacker Pass. So you've got... Um, a, a, you have real, at least three different sets of investors that have that have owned LAC over the years that have bought it, 
Um, and I just don't think there's a real understanding of the, the relative size of those. Now, of course, you've also have GM, which owns a, um, a big percentage of lithium Americas now, and will um, clearly ha they have a they'll have a hold on selling their lithium Argentina stock, um, but um, clearly they're also not um, not really aligned with the Argentinian project, right? So all that has to play trade you know, sort of play out in in the relative valuation over the next uh, probably four to six months. Given the nature of your job, you speak with a lot of institutional investors, and I'm curious, with this pullback that we've seen in lithium down 50% or more, many equities are down 30, 40, 50%. Are you getting a lot of interest in a lot of inbound calls? Do you think people are getting more interested in the sector now because of this pullback? So not yet. Like most of the concern or the, most of the calls I get are about concerns about what um, various companies are doing relative to kind of what they said in the past they'd be doing and like whether the whether the projects are under some form of um, pressure given the, the pricing like that's where most of the concerns um, have been about I think uh, we typically don't see the sort of the new uh, money come into a sector until there's a washout like an absolute washout and it's a you know when you think about it Think about the marginal cost of capacity is probably $8,000 a ton. So uh, lithium carbon equivalent. So, um, you know, some people will call me out on that. Like if you looked at some Chinese lapidolite producers, it's, it's way higher than that. But let's keep them off to the side. But if you're a Western producer, there is some, you know, the cost curve, um, it can go down quite low. So there's lots of more, lots more room for the price to come down. So I typically the new money comes in looking at these types of um, these types of companies when you have an absolute washout in price, we're just not there yet. And I think the issue is uh, we may not get there, right? Sure, we might be uh, going down below $30,000 a ton, uh, but there's a long way to go lower. And typically we don't see the, 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 those new guys come in until there's a washout and we're just not there yet. Well, that was going to be my wrap-up question, Mac. Have we've seen the bottom in lithium prices? And I guess you just answered. I don't, that. Well, I, it sort of did. Like, but I can put some. I could frame it a little bit more. Like, um, when we see pricing, so I have a long-term price deck. My long-term pricing twenty-two thousand five hundred dollars a ton. Some people have said, "Oh, that's way too low." But I think what's important to understand from from the dynamics of supply and demand and incenting new supply that might seem too low the issue is when you model ev penetration uh, that can only happen when the battery price comes down the cost of a battery in a car come down that means the commodity prices have to come down it means the capex for the new plants have to come down everything has to come down so you will not get the penetration that you think if the pricing stays high which means your demand won't be as high either. So the, these two things are are connected. So you have to expect when you're building a new industry that that price comes down over time. I think what we're seeing is different than that. Like that's not a smooth decline over a number of years. What we're seeing is a short-term inventory uh, supply demand issue. And we've seen this before. And what happens is it'll overshoot to the downside and it'll come roaring right back. And I think that's what we're actually seeing. 
Um, but it could it could take six months to play out. Whether it goes back to eighty thousand dollars a ton, I doubt it. Um, but I do, and I think that's because the little light starts turning on again. And so those are more in the thirty-five to forty dollar per ton range. So I think we're kind of we're in a situation where we're going to see pricing come down. Um, but we're going to quite as you know we could we could quite easily imagine it going you know bouncing right back up again. So um, so it's a it's a complex story. It's very volatile, which is a sign of that supply and demand uh, imbalance that we should expect for the next decade, frankly. Well, Mac, that was a great overview, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your insights on what's happening within the lithium sector. Once again, thank you. Great. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me, James. Hi, Keith. Thank you very much for joining us today. This has been a transformational year for Piedmont Lithium, having gone from an explorer code to a developer to a producer in a relatively short period of time. And Piedmont recently released its Q3 earnings, the first earnings in the history of the company. And why don't we just start right there? Give us a highlight of, of those numbers. Uh, thanks, Jimmy. It's great to be on with you again. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, we were all thrilled at Piedmont to have our first quarterly earnings call and to report third quarter uh, revenue for the first time. We had two shipments in the quarter. Uh, we had gross profit margins over 50% uh, despite uh, declining lithium prices, so we're very excited about that. Positive adjusted earnings per share of 88 cents a share. So it's great to be uh, have positive revenue, have positive gross profit and EBITDA and, and positive earnings per share in our first quarter. So it's very exciting. We hope to have many more quarters uh, you know, like this and with higher earnings to come. And as a reminder to our viewers, the production came from Siona, which is a mine in Quebec, and Piedmont owns 12% of Siona Mining and 25% of Siona Quebec, and has an offtake agreement with NAL. Maybe you can just provide some background on that offtake agreement. How many tons does that provide to Piedmont, and what the floor and ceilings are in terms of pricing? Yes, that's exactly right what you said. We we got involved with Sayana a few years ago. Uh, we jointly acquired North American Lithium out of receivership. Uh, Sayana is the operator. Their team's doing a great job. Uh, we, so we put the asset back into production. As part of the negotiation, uh, at the time, Sayana was looking for a customer for spodumene concentrate. We were looking to acquire spodumene concentrate for our downstream plans in the U.S. So we came together. We signed an offtake agreement. Um, and essentially, we get the greater of 113,000 tons a year or half of production at market prices subject to floors and ceilings. Uh, 2023 is a startup year, so we agreed to treat this as a half year. So for 2023, we expect to ship 56,500 tons. Uh, and again, we'll buy that material at market prices subject to floors and ceilings. The floor is $500 US a ton. The ceiling is 900 a ton. Our realized price in this quarter was over 1900 so we essentially acquired the material and on a great adjusted basis the 900 is for six percent spodumene concentrate we shipped 5.3 percent concentrate this quarter so if you do the math 5.3 divided by six times the 900 with some adjustments here and there you get to our adjusted cost of around 805 
$1,600 a ton. Our selling price averaged $1,624 a ton, uh, thus the margin. Uh, so that's the nature of the deal. It's a life of mine agreement. And, um, and uh, you know, hopefully spodumene prices will remain high and it will remain uh, uh, profitable for us. And remind me again, what is life of mine? Life of mine is currently about 20 years, although you may have seen drill results out of North American lithium uh, in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's a very big ore body. Uh, uh, it's been, and this is an asset that was literally in production underground in the 1950s. So it's been around a long time. It's been worked on by different groups. Uh, it was put back into production about 12 years ago by a Lucas Lundin back group, actually. And we're just now, uh, you know, really doing the right things with it, investing the right amount of capital to make it operate most efficiently. And, and we've taken the opportunity with Sayana to really invest in drilling to understand the scale of the opportunity. Uh, and it turns out in the last week or two, Sayana announced drill results that are probably the best ever by far for this deposit. So the future could be bright. Uh, we think there's an opportunity for considerable resource and hopefully reserve upgrade, uh, both in scale and in quality in terms of grade and thickness. So um, yeah, that, that's great news. Uh, that will require us to do some work on engineering. What does that mean from a mining perspective? Does that mean alterations to the mine plan uh, down the road? Probably it does, but that's a good thing. And uh, so we're excited about that. I think this is the sort of mine that could go for 50 years quite easily. And I'm glad you brought up the drilling that's going on. So is, is this exploration drilling or infill drilling or in what's the purpose of it? It's both. It's a good question. Uh, there was some drilling done by a prior owner that was deeper that indicated some opportunities kind of at depth, which uh, NAL had never really pursued previously. So that's exploration drilling that's going on. Those results are quite impressive. So very exciting. Uh, we're also doing a lot of infill drilling within the pit. As we got involved ourselves with Sayana over the last couple of years, we, we took a couple of different looks at the resource model. So a lot of drilling is going on inside, inside the pit shell to really understand um, you know, mining priorities, et cetera. And I think that'll, there's a lot of inferred resources that we think could, some of which will have an opportunity to come into the measured and indicated category and be ultimately counted as reserves. And you mentioned earlier that Sayona started producing in March of this year. It is ramping up. Maybe you can just speak to the ramp up process and um, when will it be at full capacity? Yeah, it'll probably be at full capacity middle of next year. I mean, full capacity for the current resource that, that could change in time with uh, higher grade material, et cetera. Uh, fundamentally, the team's doing a great job. Um, uh, you know, it's a brownfield asset, so it was relatively easy to get started up on the one hand. On the other hand, most of the material, the, the plant was built 12 or 14 years ago. It's been on care and maintenance. There've been some, there've been some minor maintenance issues uh, that are being kind of resolved and there's continual upgrading to go. So uh, they're producing well. Uh, Sayana put out guidance uh, a couple weeks ago on kind of fiscal year production. Their fiscal year is June 30th of 140 to 160,000 tons of production. I think they indicated in our senses we'll, we'll be at full ramp up by by the end of that fiscal year. So, you know, mid to late next spring, um, which is great. Why don't we move on now and discuss Ghana. Piedmont's next project to come online is in partnership with Atlantic Lithium and the project is located in West Africa or in the country of Ghana. And Piedmont also owns an offtake agreement with Atlantic Lithium. Maybe you can just provide some details of that offtake agreement and what it means to Piedmont and maybe how things are progressing within Ghana. 
Yeah, things are progressing really well in Ghana. So our off, our offtake agreement there is different. It's similar in that it's basically 50% of the material. It's not the greater of, but it's 50% of material produced. It's at market prices, no floors or ceilings. So so it's a market-based offtake agreement. What it does is it gives us 170,000 plus tons a year of swaj meat concentrate that we can have committed to us to bring into our downstream plans, uh, principally in the United States. So that's great. Uh, important achievements at in Ghana this year were, uh, first of all, there was an announcement in early September. I was in Perth when this, with the team when this was announced, of MIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, for Ghana, investing in the project. They're investing about 28 million to buy 6% of the project. They'll fund their share of the CapEx. That's a great endorsement, uh, very important for the project. Uh, separately, the mining lease was granted a couple weeks ago to, uh, to Atlantic. That needs parliamentary ratification, but we expect that to be forthcoming. So we're now entering the permitting process. It should be relatively straightforward. Ghana is a proven mining country. This is a simple DMS plant. Uh, so we hope to be permitted by late 2024 and then start construction and be per with production commencing kind of late 2025 and ramping up into 2026. And, and what I'd highlight here is this is a uh, this is a big project. It's it you know Atlant if you look at Atlantic Lithium's PowerPoint. They characterize this as the 10th biggest spodumene producer in the world, 10th biggest producing spodumene mine in the world uh, by the time it's ramped up in 2026. So that's exciting. We're going to own essentially half of it um, uh, with some dilution with the government involved, and we'll have half the material. So uh, it's very significant. It should be relatively low capex, relatively low operating costs, just given the nature of the flow sheet. And it's tr a truly world-class project. Interestingly, we can get material physically from that mine site to our chemical plant site in Tennessee for less money logistically than it would cost to get it from Valdor. Um, that's how attractive kind of the shipping logistics are from the port in Ghana to uh, our site in Tennessee. Keith, you mentioned Tennessee. Why don't we move the discussion toward your U.S. operations and give us an overview of what's happening in Tennessee. You have all the permits in place. If you want it, you could start construction very soon, but you're gonna hold off, why? We really want to put in the most sensible financing package for our shareholders. So this is a big project. Uh, the definitive feasibility study showed CapEx uh, about $800 million. Uh, we've done a lot of detailed engineering since then. We spent a lot of money on uh, on the right consultants doing the right work. And, and with just capital cost inflation, it's clear it'll cost some more. We don't know exactly how much more yet, but as we think about funding it, um, it's a big project. Uh, it's It will be harder to execute, I think, given the history of some of the projects, say, in Western Australia, than a spodumene mine will be. So from our perspective, we think it's important to de-risk it technically and financially. So we have uh, we are applying for an ATVM loan through the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. These are the low-cost uh, loans that are put in place for EV businesses and suppliers to EV businesses like us, essentially. Uh, we think that could cover somewhere around 70% of the capital. Uh, and for the rest of the capital, we're in conversations with potential strategic partners who would like to get involved in the project. Um, we're willing to sell down as much as half of the project, end up owning half. We'd like to own more, but we're happy to own half with the right partner. I would say interest is strong, as you might suspect. We are, uh, it's early days. It'll take several months to bring a process to conclusion, but uh, as you might imagine, a world-class lithium hydroxide plant in the southeastern U.S. benefiting from the IRA in a market where we think we'll need 30 or 40 times more lithium hydroxide in the U.S. than we currently produce just in the next decade. It's really very strategic for people. So the big car companies, the big battery companies, many others are quite interested. And uh, uh, we think we'll have a pretty happy outcome there and really 
end up with a project that we own half or more of for a relatively small amount of our own capital. Uh, we've already invested quite a bit ourselves um, with uh, the, the, tech, the technical execution de-risk considerably. So that's the way we're going to approach it. Uh, it's all about uh, you know preserving shareholder wealth and, and not putting it at risk. And when you talk about the announcement of a partnership, when can we expect to see that news? Will that be sometime in 2024? It could be. Um, it could easily be. I mean, I think we uh, the process could move quickly or slowly depending on how we pursue it. I mean, there are there are parties who are more acutely interested. There are some parties who we think this makes a lot of sense for who we need to spend more time with. And uh, we're not in a big hurry. I mean, we there was this view in the lithium industry for a period that prices are at this extraordinary level. You should move as fast as you can to get into production. I never really bought into that strategy, and I certainly don't today with prices having fallen 70%. So I think what's important is to do it right. This is a 30-year asset. It's important to get the right partner socially, technically, financially, uh, someone who the U.S. government will will embrace, uh, obviously, uh, and because that'll help with the funding, and to really do it right. We're going to build a big lithium hydroxide business. Tennessee will probably be our first plant. Um, you know, Getting it right is really important to us. So uh, 2024 timeline, sure, that should happen, uh, could happen, um, um, and and but we'll have more news as 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 we know as we know the answer. All very good points. The last project I want to touch on is Carolina Lithium, which is based in North Carolina. It's at the feasibility stage. Why don't you provide an update on this project? Yeah, it's a great project. You know, it's we we call it the best located lithium project in the world. Um, it's in, in North Carolina, 30 miles west of Charlotte on the tin spodumene belt, one of the world's biggest spodumene belts and where all the lithium of the world was produced from the 1950s to the 1980s, essentially. So it's a great location surrounded by customers, great labor force, low cost energy, great infrastructure, and importantly, an opportunity to monetize the byproducts from the mining process. You know, most spodumene pegmatites in the world have other minerals like quartz or feldspar associated with them, but they don't have markets nearby. We, we're surrounded by consumers for those markets. So that can be a very significant benefit to our cash cost of production on the mining side. So that's a project we're moving forward. We're in the permitting phase. We need a mine permit. We're um, in the late phases of that. We hope to get that in the first half of next year. We need an air permit for the chemical plant we're going to build. It's an integrated site with a mine and chemical plant on the same site. That's unique. There's nowhere else in the world other than possibly NAL where that's the case. Um, so we need an air permit. We think we get sometime next summer. Uh, and then we need to have the property itself rezoned. This is a this is a private land that we own, that we've acquired. It's currently zoned, you know, for the most part, residential or agricultural. It needs to be rezoned for industrial purposes. That's a process that will follow the mining permit. So it'll all take time, you know, uh, but good things are worth waiting for. And, and we're, we remain very confident we'll get to the finish line with that project. Um, it's currently slotted to occur after Tennessee. So we'll see how this, per, this partnering process goes. Uh, every partner, uh, potential partner we're talking to is also interested in, in Carolina, as you might imagine. And uh, so we'll see how that all plays out in 2024. Keith, I want to move on and discuss your balance sheet and also your funding strategy. You have a lot going on, all of which is going to require a lot of capital. How much cash do you currently have on hand and how will you allocate that cash in the coming year? Uh, the answer to the second question is carefully. So we have we have about 95 million of cash in the balance sheet. We also own about 85 million in stock in Sayana and Atlantic. Those aren't really held for sale. It's not our plan to sell them, but if we needed money, we could. 
uh, those shareholder interests are un unrelated to our JV interests and our optic arrangements. Um, and uh, from a capital perspective, over the next year, A, we expect to generate you know, operating cash flow through our NAL optic agreement. Um, we have a gross margin of 50% at these prices, so that's helpful. Uh, B, most of the money we need to spend, you would expect to spend it, say, in Ghana, in Tennessee, and Carolina, is already spent on the engineering. Um, the DFS is done in Ghana. Most of the remaining spend there will wait for a permit, which is a year away, plus or minus. Uh, a lot of work has been done on front-end engineering design in Tennessee. We're not going to do a lot more now while we go through the partnering process. Partners might have their own points of view on things, so we'll preserve capital there. And in Carolina, we're really just spending money on on permitting, which, which isn't that expensive, but also acquiring some of the land still as it comes to. So, so we feel good about our position. We're fortunate. I mean, the big differentiator I think for us is of the dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of lithium projects and companies out there, we're one of a very small number that has cash flow, And that's a big differentiator. We're a producer with cash flow, And that really uh, lets me sleep easier at night as I think about our cash position. You'd made mention earlier about how the pullback in lithium prices has impacted your financials. Do you think we've found a level with the lithium price now, or do you think we might be under more pressure? It's hard to know. I think we're certainly bumping up against the cost curve. I mean, this is a somewhat opaque industry. Maybe it's more than somewhat opaque. It's it's a it's a young industry. Uh, the sources of raw material uh, are, you know, the biggest sources have been Australian spodumene, South American brine. It's been 80% plus of the market. As the market's grown, there have been some African spodumene projects come online. There's been some Chinese lapidolite projects come online. Not everyone has a great handle on what the operating cost of those operations are. But I think it's safe to say that as you think about lithium, and there are really three benchmark products. There's the mineral concentrate, spodumene concentrate that we're selling now. And then there are lithium salts, hydroxide and carbonate. And ultimately to produce lithium carbonate or hydroxide from lipidolite. Lipidolite's another mineral, considerably lower grade than spodumene. Uh, by definition, operating costs are higher. You gotta process a lot more rock to get to the same place. Um, so I think we're bumping up against that cost curve. Uh, in our view, I mean, the, 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 under, the benchmarks that we've been focused on with our own contracts, with our trading companies selling spodumene, we sort of plateaued here over the last few weeks. Um, and I don't know if that's a false bottom or if that's uh, you know a bottom for me. I don't know, but um, we don't have a great crystal ball heading into the next year or so. We're we're happy to have 50% gross margins at these levels. If prices would rebound, not to the historical levels, but if they would rebound, uh, it would be great for us. Obviously, our, our costs are relatively fixed. We pay 900 a ton, adjusted for grade and, and some other minor things. So if prices go up. Uh, we obviously uh, it's direct to the bottom line. And uh, so that's very exciting for us. Keith, as we wrap up, 2023 was a transformational year. Piedmont became a producer and you also released your first ever earnings. How are you going to top that in 2024? That's uh, a great, great question. I think, I, think, I think the NAL operation will continue to improve. I think they will, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to nameplate, um, you know, we'll get, we'll get to run rate by the middle of next year. Um, I expect to see more drill results announced, and I think you'll see over the course of 2024 some discussion of what those drill results mean in terms of mine life, in terms of mine plan, and what the potential upside of the project is. So that's very exciting. Uh, you know, we hope to have financing for Tennessee very much involved over the course of 2024. We hope to see Ghana permitted and in construction in 2024. 
we hope to see Carolina permitted and moving forward uh, through the rezoning process in 2024. Those are all important catalysts. I think the market, we're a somewhat more difficult company to analyze. And I think many say um, that the value of our offtake agreement alone is represents our market cap. And I think people have discounted assets like Carolina very, very heavily. And that's okay. Uh, it provides a lot of upside for us. And I think as we, we demonstrate success at a place like Carolina and the other projects, I think the market will be able to focus on kind of the broader value proposition within Piedmont. Well, it sounds like you and your team are going to be very busy in the coming year. And that was a great overview and a great update on Piedmont Lithium. And I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today. And I look forward to the next update. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Happy to do it. Phoebe, thank you very much for joining us today. Before we begin, tell us about your firm, Fast Markets. Where's the firm based and what services does it offer? Thanks so much for having me, Jimmy. It's always great to be on your channel. Um, yeah, so Fast Markets, we're predominantly a price reporting agency. So pricing a whole string of commodities uh, in, in a vast array of different industries. Um, from my perspective, I'm on the battery raw materials team, and that's in a research team where we produce long-term forecasts looking out on the key battery metals and then all other aspects of the battery. So battery cost modeling, cost curve modeling, battery recycling, so end-to-end -end full analysis. Um, and we pair that with our in-house editorial team who produce the global leading prices for lithium, nickel, cobalt. Um, so really kind of a full spectrum of the battery world from top to bottom. And it's it's a really great place to be. And we just came off of our conference in Amsterdam where we discussed a lot of battery related content, which I'll probably bring up in the next kind of 20 minutes or so. And I'm glad you brought up that conference in Amsterdam. Maybe you can give us a little bit of context. What was the theme of the conference and how many people showed up? Yeah, so it was our Europe Battery Raw Materials Conference. So very much based in the conversations around Europe's issues, how we tackle those issues and the kind of uh, facilitating cross-industry collaboration. So we had actors from across the supply chain starting in the upstream with the likes of Albemarle, you know, your global leading lithium producers, uh, nickel producers, cobalt producers, down to the midstream processors, manufacturers, battery manufacturers as well, like your CATLs, and then down into the downstream, so Volvo, uh, Mercedes, Daimler, uh, the whole host of the people acting in the sphere were there. Um, and yeah, we were discussing all the issues going on in Europe right now. So the you know complexities of regulation, uh, the lack of upstream supply. These are all issues that we were touching on on a long-term forecast. So it was great to kind of be able to engage with clients on that and try and get to the bottom of some of those issues. And Phoebe, the big driver behind lithium demand is the growth in EVs and 10 million EVs were sold globally in the year 2022. What is Fast Markets projecting for EV sales in 2023? Yeah, so last year was a great year. This year, we're looking at 14.9 million EVs being sold. And that sounds like a great number, and it is. But if we look at year-on-year -year growth rates uh, for this year compared to the last, we're expecting 32% year-on-year growth this year, which is a lot slower than 2022, which was around 54%, and the year prior in 2021, which was 104%. So continuing 
that kind of strong growth, but not at the same level as previously. And that's largely due to some kind of slowing momentum in China, where we've seen a real sluggishness in that market due to kind of a string of factors, mostly macroeconomic in nature, um, but also a real saturation of the market there with EVs and a lack of affordability for consumers in different regions of China. So there's some kind of structural issues there, which I'm sure we can go on to in more detail later in our conversation. Um, but yeah, all in all, kind of we're seeing some cracks emerge, some structural issues that I think as an industry, we're trying to engage with and make sure that we can tackle further down the decade. And when you talk about 10 million or 15 million EV sales, it sounds like a lot, but when you look at it as a percentage of overall sales of cars, what percentage would it be? Yeah, so this year with 14.9 million EVs, that would be around 20% EV penetration, aka 20% of total vehicle sales. That would be up from 15% last year. So it's a fair amount. You know, it's not uh, a third as of yet, but I think we'll get there in the next couple of years. I think what's more indicative is if we look at EV penetration rates across different regions. So in China this year, for example, we're expecting it to reach 34% of EV penetration rate. Europe, we're expecting 30%. US, 9%. Bit of a more nascent market there, but fast emerging. And I think what those three regions highlight as the most fast moving, kind of largest consumer markets is that EVs are surging very quickly in consumers' minds as being a popular item to purchase. And secondly, what those numbers are also showcasing is that we're passing the tipping point um, for EVs being consumed. And we largely argue in the industry that that's a 5% EV penetration mark. And that's because if we look historically at markets that have been quick to emerge as um, countries for fast EV adoption, we see the 5% EV penetration mark as kind of the beginning of a of an S curve, so exponential growth. And that's mostly due to the fact that EVs are around more often, so consumers build and their confidence as them as a transport vehicle. But it's also that um, historically we've seen that EVs then move away from the niche kind of edge of the market and become very much more kind of consumed across different consumer types. So with all those regions surpassing that 5%, it's a really exciting time. And I think we're gonna see exponential growth across a lot of different countries over the next two years. And Phoebe, when it comes to adoption of EVs, one of the things that prevents me from acquiring one has to do with the range and also the lack of charging stations. And living in a cold climate, it does have a negative impact on the charge. EVs work very well in Florida or California, but not so well in a cold climate. So maybe you can just talk about that and how the lack of charging station in, a, in conjunction with a short range has negatively impacted the sale of or adoption of EVs. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to highlight there is um, charging point infrastructure as the main barrier. Um, cell technological development is fast evolving. And I, I think that in terms of a range concern is not actually the problem. And I think that's the adjustment that needs to take place in people's minds. It's not range anxiety, it's charge anxiety. It's that fear, right? Like you've just said, Jimmy, that you're not gonna find a charging point in the rural areas of Canada where you go skiing or in the rural areas of the UK where I am if I'm going on a trip somewhere. So. Really the issue there is ensuring that there's the right policy, the right incentives and the right financial support to build that network. 
And what I included in my demonstration in Amsterdam was um, some kind of research I've done to show the countries in the world that are the most advanced and the least advanced in building that infrastructure. And we can do that by creating a simple EV fleet to charging point ratio. So what it showcases is that at the bottom of the pile, we have the US with a 49 EVs to one public charging point ratio compared to your South Korea's or China where they've got two to one and three to one. And typically why that 49 to one is not that great is because we argue that a 10 to one ratio is kind of the basic necessity uh, for two things to happen. Number one, to actively support your current fleet but also to embolden people's confidence in the market to purchase an EV because they're around, they can see public charging points and their charge anxiety reduces. So that's the kind of real fraction or fracture, should we say, right now in the market. I think that's the area where consumers have the least confidence and that really needs to be ameliorated because on the technological side for sales, that is quick advancing and we're seeing, you know, cells coming out of China that have over a thousand kilometers in range, for example, if we're referencing Goshen cells. So yeah, I think the charging point is a real sticking point for us right now. And why don't you just expand on that when it comes to lithium ion batteries, there's two primary types, NCM and LFP. What's the difference between the two and which one is more dominant and why? Yeah, it's it's funny. These two kind of emerged as um, the kind of lead competitors in the market. If I just kind of explain the differences and, and why they're going head to head. So LFP, it's a lithium ion phosphate cell. Typically, it has a lower energy density because it can have around 150 to 170 watts per kilogram. Um, and however, it's kind of a lower cost because it's lithium ion and phosphate. If we compare that to NCM. We're looking at nickel, cobalt, manganese. The inclusion of cobalt makes it a bit more expensive. However, that nickel and cobalt partnership give it gives it a bigger energy density with around 220 watts per kilogram. So that's kind of giving you a range of 400 to 600 kilometers. And so that range is making NCM far more popular in markets like the US, those in Europe where consumers perceive a need to have a vehicle that can travel, you know, that 600 kilometers. Um, and by contrast, we're seeing LFP being manufactured and consumed in China quite a lot. So you're getting around, if we take kind of the Tesla Model 3 as an example, 430 kilometers of range, so a bit shorter. The thing that I think will change with time um, is that consumers will become aware that they actually don't need that much range in their vehicles. So research has shown that 99% of users in the UK uh, actually use uh, less than 160 kilometers in total drives kind of in a car in the year. And then the average trip in the US is in 94% of cases also below 80 kilometers. And I think that gives a sense actually as to the reality of the car that you need. And I think with time, consumers will realize that and be more comfortable with having an LFP battery in their car with a lower range as a result. But for now, if I just give you our forecast, um, in 2033, we're expecting NCM to be the more dominant in EVs with 48% of the market. Um, LFP is going to have uh, just a little bit below that with around 40%. But I think with time, LFP will kind of overgrow NCM as those changes in the consumer world kind of take place. So LFP in our minds is, is really where the growth rates is at, but NCM will still be around to play.
So we spent some time on EVs, but you have also done a lot of work on energy storage systems. What is energy storage and how is it driving battery demand? Yeah, so to give a kind of broad definition, energy storage is where you use um, technology to store and harness energy from the grid, and then you expend it at another time when you need that energy. So historically, that's been done with hydropower, where you use water from different heights to propel a wheel and generate power. Um, and hydropower has been around since the 19th century, so nothing really new there. Um, but now the we're in the era of battery energy storage. So that's where you use a battery to store energy from the grid and then expel it at another time for a variety of use cases. Um, it could either be the main ones or one of two. So the first is frequency regulation where um, issues with the grid, they'll use batteries to store or expel energy to balance that out. And then secondly, and why we're seeing it become super popular, is the arrival of renewable energy. Renewable energy creates a lot of peaks and troughs in terms of power generation. And what batteries can do is they can store the energy at those kind of peak times and expend it at times when it's lower. So if you take solar, that would be at night. Um, and we're also seeing markets kind of realize this and understand the capacities that batteries pose to their grids and their renewable energy. And so if we take the US and China, we're seeing an explosion of policy, um, which is really seeking to increase the amount of batteries in their markets. So the US with the IRA, um, incredibly lucrative tax credits, reaching 70% of the tax credit for ESS products. Um, and that's made investors really keen on pursuing ESS projects there. And then in China, we're seeing more of a stick than a carrot approach. Um, enforcing that of all renewable energy products, 10 to 15% have to be supported by a battery. So policy really leading the way there, but also the private sector coming up with the likes of the IRA creating the kind of lucrative nature of ESS. So um, a really exciting market. I would frame it all by saying though, that it's only 7% of battery demand globally right now. It's going to reach 15% by 2033 but it is much smaller than the EV segment. So we'll still see that world, shall we say, kind of take the lion's share for battery demand. Phoebe, we can't have a discussion on EVs and lithium ion batteries without discussing China. And you touched on this earlier, but it is the largest market in the world. And maybe you can just tell us what's happening in China in terms of the economy and also the impact that is having on the growth in EVs and also lithium ion batteries. Yeah, I mean, we're all reading about it, right? Um, there's a real change going on in the Chinese market. The history of, of growth and their economic model is starting to show signs of distress. Um, and within that stress is uh, the EV segment. So historically, you know, we've seen year on year growth rates of 100% and over. And this year, you know, we're seeing month on month um sorry year on year growth on a monthly sense of around 30 to 40 percent so it is slowing down and if we take q1 you know in january we saw sales uh, actually negatively contract by 5.5 percent um so a real sluggishness there and as we've said kind of due to macroeconomic factors um but also there's kind of a saturation of consumers who can afford evs now have bought them uh, we're actually seeing a rise in plug-in hybrids as a result because those are people in more rural areas who are seeking an EV that works for them in their location. So there needs to be an improvement of charging there. 
and also um you know we're just not seeing the kind of growth rates because of the lack of affordability more um, well, generally you know china's consumer market is much more variable in terms of average monthly income particularly in rural areas so we need evs to get a little bit cheaper as well so we'll see that happen but until then um the market is sluggish and as a result global sales are a bit slower and as a result of that lithium prices and lithium demand for this year is also a lot slower so it's very much a china story so let's expand on that and let's put all these two factors together the ev adoption rate is growing but we have an economic slowdown in china what are these two factors or i should say how are these two factors impacting the lithium price yeah we've seen real sluggishness this year so if i give you some figures using our fast markets um lce so that's lithium carbonate price in china you know, we saw over 590,000 yuan per ton in price last December. We're now at 200,000. So, you know, a drop of over, you know, 70% there, um, which is pretty severe given the highs in Q4 last year. So what we've seen really, um, in addition to that volatility is, in addition to that volatility, sorry, is consolidation. And what I mean by that is this 200,000 yuan per ton has really demonstrated to us where supply really is um, last year there wasn't enough and that's why the prices were so volatile in terms of upward trajectory this year china has kind of got over capacity and oversupply across the supply chain so i mean lithium um, also batteries and evs and why that's showing in the lithium price is because that means that there's a lot in the market and we just aren't consuming enough of that stuff essentially and so what we're hearing from lipidolite producers is that they're actually starting to turn off the taps at 200,000 yuan per ton. And that signals to us that that's kind of a base price that's needed in the market before it starts to eat into profit margins. So going forward over the next couple of years, we would expect that as a base price. Over the longer term, as more supply continues to come online, that price will continue to trend down. Having said that, there will always be volatility, there will always be black swan events. And so I think it's needless to say that there's a strong likelihood that that price could go up again. But I think in Q4, we'll see a little bit of price surge because of Q4 seasonality in China, we tend to see EV sales go up. But if we're talking about severe volatility in the near or long term, we're not gonna see anything like we saw in Q4 last year. Phoebe, as we wrap up, Fast Markets is always organizing amazing events. Maybe you can tell us what events are coming up in the next few months. Yeah, we've got a ton. Our events team are incredibly busy. So first one is a webinar that my team are doing to kind of look at this year and look at the year ahead and try and dispel some of the chaos and, um, yeah, explain to our clients what we're saying for the near and long term. So I'd advise everybody to tune in for that. But in terms of physical events, um, we've got our China's Shanghai conference December 6th and 7th. And then next year, we'll have our usual kind of lineup of our Asia conference in Seoul, which is super exciting, going to be my first time there in May, June. And then we're going to go back to Vegas for our kind of flagship lithium event, which had over a thousand delegates this year. So really, really excited to attend all of those. And anybody watching who wants to reach out or come, please do message me on LinkedIn or get in touch. It'd be really great to have you there. Well, this is one of the great things about your job, Phoebe, is that you get to travel the world and meet many interesting people best traveling i've ever done i love it strongly advise working in the, the battery world <laughs> well 
Well, Phoebe, thank you very much for spending time with us today and sharing your insights on what's happening within the lithium ion battery space. Once again, thank you. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Always great to chat. Standard lithium is involved in direct lithium extraction or DLE, which is different from the hard rock mines we find in Australia or the brines that we find in South America. And I want to start right here with a brief discussion on DLE and the process and how it's different from other mining extraction processes. You bet. Yeah, it's great to reconnect with you, James. Uh, direct lithium extraction gets a lot of attention uh, in the media from the lithium industry. It is a modern process. So as you highlighted, hard rock mining, I think we all understand how that works. Brine, lithium extraction from brine has been underway for basically 60 years using evaporation ponds. The challenge with evaporation ponds are large environmental footprints, low recoveries, and then the additional challenges that are required for permitting on building these projects, typically in remote regions. Additionally, a lot of lithium resources globally are not in areas where you have the meteorological conditions where you can evaporate the water to concentrate the brine. So the approach the industry is looking at and that we've taken is to use with the industry, as you said, direct lithium extraction, DLE, which is a process where you take brine and remove the lithium from that brine in virtually real time. And then you take the brine that you release the lithium from and then, depending on the project, you return it to the source aquifer. So it's direct lithium extraction. There's a number of processes that are being trialed and developed in the industry that use adsorbents, ion exchange, solvent extraction. Each project defines which approach you would take when you develop a fully integrated direct lithium extraction process. So it's a process that the industry is evolving into on the brine side. It's, been, it's not new. There are direct lithium extraction applications globally, several in China. Livent's project in Argentina, which has been operating for decades, uses a hybrid extraction process where they use direct lithium extraction and some conventional evaporation. So it's not new. It is required to unlock the resources that we're developing. And it's also being mandated, if you like, in certain regions where the evaporation pond and the expansions that are being looked at in Chile and, and other regions will have to investigate whether they can have a DLE process in, uh, applied to those. So it's an evolution, if you like, in the lithium industry, sustainable, higher recoveries, and a higher purity final product. Another element that makes Standard Lithium unique is its partnerships with Coke Industries and also Lanx's, and you already touched on Lanx's a little bit, but I want to examine these partnerships and how they benefit Standard Lithium. Yeah, the application of direct lithium extraction, or DLE, 
is novel and the region we're working in with lithium extraction is also um, getting a, it, it required some handholding with investors to, to demonstrate why it's so attractive from a company perspective. The opportunity to partner with Lanxis off of those existing infrastructures, three brine processing plants that produce between four and five billion gallons of brine annually to the surface, pipeline to facilities, chemistry, and then pipelined and re-injected, allows us to put our primary focus on that direct lithium extraction process, on how to define the most effective and tested process. So when we move from this demonstration scale work we've been doing for three years to commercial, we have been able to put the primary attention of capital and technical expertise on that process rather than focusing on the resource development and the infrastructure required for it. So that has been a unique benefit of working on, with Lanxis with that existing infrastructure. Additionally, first project we're proposing in South Arkansas, which, which we call 1A, ties into that infrastructure, removing many of the permitting challenges you face on a new project, private property, so state level only permits, the reservoir management already managed because they've been doing this on these facilities for 60 years. So when we scale up a new process for investors, much of that project killers or project challenges that you face with infrastructure, permitting, social license, operator, operational expertise have been managed. I wouldn't say eliminated, but managed so that we, we can focus on the, the core scale up, attention to that core scale up. Coke, they're a global business um, you know, star across numbers of different businesses from the energy sector, fertilizer, consumer goods, across numerous industries. They have a venture arm, investment arm, that made a $100 million investment into Standard Lithium in 2021. That's not where that relationship ended. It didn't come with strings attached that we had to work with Coke, but they made an obvious candidate for us to investigate where we could benefit from their expertise. Coke Separation Solutions is their water treatment business. Coke Optimized Process Design is their EPC contracting business. Coke Minerals and Trading is a global minerals and trading company. And Coke Technology Solutions is applying processes and direct lithium extraction technologies into this ecosystem. So we've been able to benefit from their, all of those businesses and then their attention on the direct lithium extraction aspect. We've been in, able to integrate process units that they've been developing into our start to finish DLE flow sheet. And as we've been doing that, along with developing our own proprietary processes, we've been able to work with a company that has great expertise, but also when we go to commercial development by integrating some of these Coke process units, we can get certain performance warranties that you can't get as a startup company where they can backstop that. Extremely attractive when we're trying something new. We've done the work to, to find the best process and have entire confidence in it, but where we can manage owner's liabilities and risks with a company of Coke stature and expertise across different processes, it just adds one more 
box that we paid attention to on how we manage scale up risk and project execution. Two tremendous partners that we're working with there. Robert, you touched on the Project 1A and you recently came out with a feasibility study on this project. Why don't you take us through the highlights of the economics of that study? Yeah, the first project that we call 1A leverages that existing ecosystem or that existing infrastructure that I highlighted that Lanxis has at what we call their South Plant. So we operate currently for the last, uh, since 2020, a demonstration scale uh, DLE plant to optimize and trial and test and train the operators the most effective DLE process. The scale up that we're looking to do is to take the demonstration plant, which takes a throughput of uh, capacity at that from 50 gallons a minute to take the full fire hose, if you like, of brine that operates at this facility at 3,000 gallons a minute. Around a 95% direct lithium extraction recovery through to final conversion of lithium carbonate, we're around just over 90 to 93%, gets us with the lithium grade in this resource to a project of operating 5,700 tons per annum of lithium carbonate initially over a 25-year mine life, 5,400 tons. Not a world beater project, but it's a modest scale up where we manage that risk. The capital requirements for this are not massive like you'd find on many new projects where we're looking at multi-billion dollar capex, $365 million. It is a modest project, so the capital intensity per ton is slightly higher because when you're building something new and you don't benefit from those economies of scale, you have a, a slightly higher capital intensity, but the project economics are strong. Again, the region we're working with and that infrastructure is the reason we're doing this in a staged approach. The project economics are an NPV after tax of $550 million with an IRR of 24%. The operating costs are $6,800 over the life of the project. And that is really driven by the grade. What we're working on with this project is it's an existing plant. The lithium grades are high for North American standards. Um, over the life of the project, the concentration is around 217, just under 220 milligrams or parts, milligrams per liter of parts per million. But it's an existing brine flow. Permits are straightforward. The path to go from where we are today, we're putting in place the project finance teams. We've got commercial arrangements that we need to work through with Lanxis on the operational aspect, uh, brine supply and brine disposal agreements. But at the project level, we've defined and we've alerted the market to this. Lanxis has an opportunity to be a project partner at the equity side in the project company, and then also on the offtake side. So we're working through the steps of the commercial arrangements we currently have with Lanxis today. The intention on this project is to move through these steps, get to a final investment decision in 2024, followed by construction, and then commencement of production in 2026. That's a good overview. Uh, let's spend a little more time on the CapEx. You said it was $365 million, and I just want to spend some more time on how you would fund that. Yeah, again, it is a... It is a Modest project, again, it's not an insignificant amount, 
but the majority of the project we're targeting through a debt facility. We've been working with BNP Paribas, who's one of the world's leading, if not top of the pile in mining project debt finance. So we're working with them to put the pieces of the puzzle together. The completion of the definitive feasibility study has now allowed us into that next step. And we've identified a significant amount of interest in the project. And we'll be working with the lenders and their engineering teams to ensure that we have what will be required to be an attractive project for them. We're also actively working with our advisors on how we may benefit from policies coming out of Washington, specifically on this project in the Inflation Reduction Act. Between 48C, which is an opportunity for a, a project credit or tax credit on the capital side, and then also on 45X, which is a manufacturing credit. So the completion of the definitive feasibility study is allowing us now from the work that we've been doing in the background to really accelerate so that we can look at non-dilutive opportunities through tax policies and put the best debt facility together and then working through the commercial arrangements with Lanxis so we can define ownership of the project and offtake. And we've been extremely careful on ensuring that we've been putting the teams together and having the data so that we can move quickly because within the definitive feasibility study that we completed and uh, announced, we also have a conversion mechanism within that to make that an LSTK or a, a lump sum turnkey EPC contract. So again, where we work to manage and where, where we can provide more certainty on the project's capital requirements on scheduling and, and uh, certain price and engineering uh, on the engineering side protections for our shareholders. And OEMs have been very active in partnering with lithium producers and developers. Is this an option open to Standard Lithium? I know you made mention of the fact that you do have obligations with Langsys, but is this still a possibility? Yeah, the environment for offtake across OEMs, battery companies, and then additionally, strategic interest at the project level is extremely high. I wouldn't say, I would, wouldn't call it a waiting list. Um, per se for, for the, the Lanxis project, but we've, there's been a significant amount of interest expressed in all production. So with the Lanxis project, we have the commercial arrangements we're working through. On the larger Southwest Arkansas project, we completed a preliminary feasibility study in, uh, in August of 2023. Much larger project targeting 30,000 tons at a base case of lithium hydroxide. 35,000 on an uppercase, that project is extremely attractive because it's domestic source of lithium hydroxide. I spend most of my time when I'm in Arkansas touring and hosting site visits from offtake parties interested in domestic supply. The attractiveness of having a domestic source of lithium hydroxide to qualify for the Inflation Reduction Act on EV tax credits is one important aspect, but the project's appeal also comes from working in a region where, as I mentioned earlier, that stakeholder support is unique. We don't face some of the challenges that some of our peers have have, are having to navigate 
on permitting and other stakeholder engagements. And our environmental footprint by using a, a direct lithium extraction process is also much smaller. So you can demonstrate that you're not just securing supply, but you're securing it domestically on projects in a region where you have those benefits from sustainability, stakeholder support, and the project has a very clear path to move forward without some of the, there's always gonna be challenges, but some of the uncertainty has been addressed. So that interest on both projects, projects is extremely high. We're being thoughtful to our shareholders and then also to our project execution strategy so that we bring in partners that are complementary to both the ones we currently have and then also to our larger business development as we expand the projects and as we ex extend it to Texas as well. You just touched on your second project, which is called Southwest Arkansas. You recently came out with a pre-feasibility study on that project. Why don't you just take us through the highlights behind that study? Yeah. Again, so one of the unique aspects of how we're building these projects is the Southwest Arkansas brine grade is significantly higher than what we're starting with on the 1A project, double. We completed the pre-feasibility study, primarily moving the project forward, adding data points on the resource because the extraction process that we're developing is applicable across the smackover formation. The chemistry is largely homogeneous. We don't have to reinvent the wheel at each project. We went into this uh, pre-feasibility study with extremely high confidence and data points that we'd collected over the last five years, but we were really surprised with the drilling work where in areas we were expecting to confirm grades of 200 plus parts per million, we were seeing grades 400 and 500 plus. So the resource and our understanding of it was imp improved with that data, but it also showed a much more robust project than even our highest expectations were. The after tax NPV, where we use our base case 30,000 ton per annum lithium hydroxide is a $3.1 billion NPV project with a 32.8% IRR, extremely attractive. The average lithium concentration on this project is 437 milligrams per liter or parts per million. That's what you see on projects in Argentina. Producing lithium hydroxide, the grade on any project is king on direct lithium extraction, extremely important. If you can pump a unit of lithium, a unit of brine to the surface with one unit of lithium in it, and your cost is $1. If you can pump the same unit with double the amount of lithium in it, you almost have a, a linear cost savings. So grade is extremely important on DLE. On this project, our operating costs are just over $4,000 a ton for lithium hydroxide, just under $4,100 to be more to be, uh, to ground correctly on that. So extremely attractive. The upside case on this is a 35,000 ton per annum project. We'll be moving to selection of an engineering firm to begin feed studies and definitive feasibility studies uh, this year, 2023, and then moving into what we're hoping to be completion of those studies 
in the summer to Q3, Q4 of 2024. Extremely attractive economics on that project. And then recently, we also completed the acquisition of 118 acres of private property, which allows us optionality on locations for the conversion facility, close to infrastructure, close to um, highway systems in areas, which is really important to highlight across the Smackover formation is we're in areas where which are not under the same water stress that you find on a lot of the other lithium projects under development. Robert, as we wrap up, you provided a lot of detail on your two projects, the Langses and the Southwest Arkansas project, but maybe you can just summarize for investors what they can expect in terms of news flow in the coming months. Yeah, well, since we last spoke, it's also important to highlight, uh, James, the project that we've been building and the attention that we put into the Arkansas Smackover formation and the work we're doing in Texas is now starting to be validated by the entry of some of the world's biggest energy companies securing land positions, media reports that, they, that they're in Arkansas as well. They could have chosen anywhere on the planet. Additionally, our neighbor is the on, between the Southwest Arkansas project and the Lanxus project is Albemarle, world's largest lithium producer who operate bromine assets in South Arkansas. And now, They've also begun paying attention in recent announcements that they're focusing on DLE, piloting work, Arkansas as an opportunity. So the region investors are gonna get a lot more media attention on it. I've been banging the drum for six years, but these recent new entrants have amplified why we believe the region is so important. So with our projects, we put together a well thought out process. We're working as quickly on these projects as we can. We'd love to be able to work quicker, but we, the technical work needs to be done. Completion of the definitive feasibility study now puts us on the path towards moving towards the completion of the agreements with Lanxus so that we can get to construction targeting next year on that first project. Extremely exciting. I've been told by my team that expect the busiest six months of our career at Standard Lithium to date. So I've prepped the family on that. On the larger Southwest Arkansas project, we'll be moving towards feed and definitive feasibility study work, which will be mostly filling in more technical, geological and hydraulic data. Additionally, the expansion work that we're doing in Texas. Spent a lot of time in Texas now, and we've got a very large team of landsmen, and also on the technical and geological side, where we're looking to secure large lease packages where we've identified the most optimal brine conditions. So we'll be able to, once we've secured those leases, inform the market on the scale that we believe this region has to be the most important lithium producing region in North America. Well, Robert, it sounds like you and your team have a very busy few months coming up and I wanna thank you for spending time with us today and providing an update on what's happening at Standard Lithium. Thanks, James, and I look forward to keeping you informed uh, over the next coming months as well.
Hi, Chris, and thank you very much for joining us today. Chris, when looking at where lithium comes from, jurisdiction is increasingly important. E3 Lithium operates in one of the best jurisdictions in the world, in Alberta, Canada, and the province of Alberta has a rich history in oil and gas, and this bodes well for E3 Lithium, given you will be using direct lithium extraction or DLE process. And these types of projects are very similar to oil and gas operations. And I want to start here, and maybe you can just start with the support that E3 Lithium has received from both the provincial and the federal governments in terms of funding. Yeah, I think E3 has been um, pretty fortunate. We've, we've started off uh, this project in Alberta um, developing a, a direct extraction from a, a very famous aquifer called the Leduc. Um, as everybody probably knows, Alberta is well known for its oil and gas industry, and there's a lot of parallels between how we operate and how uh, an oil and gas company operates in the province it can, on the conventional side. And so um, that synergy has uh, prompted, I think, a lot of interest in developing a lithium industry in Alberta across the board, um, from government to industry, and mainly because, you know, to get a, uh, a skilled worker in Calgary, whether you're you're in the in a, in Calgary working at, at the head office, you're out in uh, operating at a site or anything in between, um, we have the skill set here in Alberta to do what we're trying to do. So it's a very small step to move from uh, developing a uh, oil and gas project to developing a lithium project. And I think for that reason, there's been a lot of interest from the federal and provincial governments to support this project. Um, the provincial government uh, has thrown some funding at it, uh, but the biggest thing that we've seen is a couple of years ago, they brought into uh, law a bill that brought the regulatory authority for lithium under the uh, Alberta Energy Regulator who regulates oil and gas. And that is fundamental to the ability for us to, to permit this project because it has a now a firm home in a, in a regulatory environment that's well-established. Um, not just from a permitting perspective, but also a social license perspective. Um, the, the, we will operate on private land. You'll see some, some farmer's fields behind me. Um, that is our project area. Um, and there's an ecosystem for working with the local farmers to put, for example, a well on their property. They get paid a little bit of money. Um, that helps them out when the yields aren't as good. And, and there's a, a relationship there that is well established and a respect between industry and the and the landowners. And that will dovetail very well into the lithium industry because again, we operate very similarly. We will be doing the same sorts of activities. From the federal government perspective, there's been a big push from a geopolitical side um, to get local sources of lithium um, into the North American supply chain. Um, the Canadian federal government and the US federal government have signed um, agreements to make that happen and to streamline processing um, uh, and all of those other uh, opportunities, including funding. So we've received $30 million from the federal government to develop this industry. And I think largely because of the ability to have a diversified industry so we can produce lithium in Alberta, but also um, that we're the first. So we're, we're cutting edge here of developing this industry, but there are others in the, in the area in Western Canada trying to develop these projects. And the success for E3 means success, most likely, therefore, for the rest of those companies and the industry across the province and in Saskatchewan as well. 
You raised some very interesting points here, and one thing we cannot underestimate is the support of the public, and you mentioned or you touched on the social licensing, but because Alberta has such a strong history in oil and gas, you have the support of the people of Alberta with this project. Yeah, and I think it's been a very important piece of where E3s come from. Um, you know, all of our staff, say for one, have been hired out of Alberta's workforce. Um, everyone understands how to build and operate uh, projects here in the province and it's a little bit different than the mineral industry because this isn't really mining you know we're, we're drilling wells and extracting a fluid in a closed loop system so the the impact to the environment um, from a surface perspective and, and from impacting like freshwater aquifers is, is very very minimal and especially when you look at how traditional um, lithium is produced so I think those really bode well because that environmental um, which is dovetails very closely with your social license because if you don't have an impact um, the local communities uh, are getting jobs but they're not seeing an impact to the environment and the the combination of the two I think uh, sets E3 uh, ahead of, of most. And I'm glad you brought this up I want to delve into this a little bit different and just as a reminder to our viewers lithium is typically mined by traditional hard rock mining which is what we have in Ontario or the province of Quebec and also in Australia, where we have evaporation ponds that we find in Chile. But in Alberta, the extraction method will be using direct lithium extraction or DLE. Maybe you can just expand on that a little bit more and what this process means. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, um, lithium, before the lithium race for batteries, there was one hard rock mine in Australia and lithium was produced as a byproduct in evaporation ponds. Um, since the advent of the lithium battery and, and more so the, the commercial use of that battery in uh, stationary storage, mostly uh, electric vehicles and other applications, I mean, you can't, you can't find a battery now that's in a high power device that's not lithium from your power tools to your scooters. Everything is now using lithium. The reason is because it packs uh, a large amount of energy density uh, per weight. So you're able to uh, put a small amount of power in a very small um, cell. And that has really changed the lithium industry, but there's not, looking at that industry from uh, its infancy is really only about the past 10 years. While we produced lithium before that, we didn't need it in the quantity that we do in the future. So we're talking 3 million tons of lithium required in the next 10 years or so. Um, we currently produce about 500,000 tons, a little bit less than that. So we have to scale this six times in the next 10 years. I mean, mining just doesn't, uh, extraction of industries just don't scale that quickly. You can build battery factories that quickly, but you can't build mines that quickly. And so when you look at it from the perspective of what we're doing, um, this chemical process to do the extraction of lithium enables us to, ex uh, to expand and scale very rapidly. Um, because you're just, you, you drill the well, the product comes to the surface, and you're putting it through this system and within hours you have a product at the back end and that's a big differentiator between the, uh, from the rest of the supply chain the solars take a long time usually it's it's 12 to, 8 to 24 months depending on the solar and the rain um, before you get the lithium into a product that you can take to market in a in a hard rock mine most of them today and, and i can think of an, an example where this isn't the case um, you mine it you create a, a concentrate at the mine and then it's transported for processing the majority of lithium right now is coming out of Australia, about 55%. That's uh, mostly processed in China. So it's, it's put on a ship 
um, at port at 6% lithium, and then it's transported by ship to China where it's processed. And then from that perspective, 80% of the lithium we um, consume today in terms of the battery quality lithium comes out of, of China. And so having a local source here that is this big, I mean, one of the big advantages to E3's project is that we can scale this up to be a global size. 150,000 tons is our estimate with a mine life of around 25 to 30 years. So it's a significant source of lithium um, that is local. Um, we will produce the battery products directly out of the back of the facility. Um, and all of that, uh, you know, for a company enables us to grow and expand and, and become a global leader in producing lithium in a very stable jurisdiction. So Chris, let's do a deeper dive on E3 lithium. You and your team have achieved many milestones in 2023, beginning with the resource update. Can you touch on the highlights of that report and how this positions E3 lithium's resource just in terms of size? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, resource upgrade was the, the result of a lot of work. We drilled some wells, we did some production testing to gain an understanding of the aquifer, where we actually plan to uh, locate the first facility. Um, and that led to the upgrade of measured indicated for a total of 16 million tons. Um, and it's it's a significant size, it is a global size. There's <clears throat> pardon me, not that many resources in one area that are bigger than this. Um, and when you look at it from the perspective of Canada, the rest of Canada's measured indicated resources total 3.2 million tons. So this is roughly about five times larger than all of the rest of Canada's resources combined. So it is a very significant size, but I think it it goes to the size of the opportunity here in Alberta. I mean, Alberta does things big um, in the oil and gas industry. Everything that has happened in Alberta, it's always been global scale. You know, the third largest reserves of oil are in, in the province globally. So um, it's the, we have the same geologic uh, sort of system here, the same geologic stratigraphy that has enabled that same boasting from the oil and gas industry that we are now seeing from the lithium industry. We just have a very good stratigraphic package of rock that has lots of water in it in this one particular formation that happens to have lots of lithium. Um, it's, it's interesting because this aquifer started the oil rush in 1947 in Alberta when they discovered oil. Um, and it's been the oil has been produced off of it uh, pretty much now completely. But at, even at that time, it was the, the majority of the fluid in there by like 99% was lithium enriched brine. Um, the market has just changed. That's all in terms of what, what we're interested in producing from it. Um, so, you know, I think the, that understanding and that size aspect, uh, Alberta is well-placed to capitalize on. That's an interesting point. I didn't realize the oil and gas reserves were so large. You say number three in the world? Yeah. Interesting. Chris, another milestone was the operation of the pilot plant and the subsequent results. Can you provide an overview of this and, and the results touching on the recoveries and also the impurities in, in the concentration? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the pilot was uh, a very strong success for the company. Um, you know, we started it, uh, constructing it in the spring. Um, we got the thing operational in July. We were commissioning DLE in August and and have been running it since we're just in the final phases of um the first two systems that we tested um right now and uh the results that we put out um for uh, the first system that we tested which are now public um demonstrated that 
we're able to produce a very high quality concentrate. Um, so not just lithium grades, so we take it from 75 to about 900, um, but the purity is also very, uh, very high. So it's about 80%, which is important for the downstream. Um, it allows you to simplify the processing. But I think what's most fundamental to this is the amount of brine they're able to flow. Um, and we, we, we've given a ratio called the flow rate ratio, which is really the amount of brine you can flow per given amount of the, the chemical desorbent. And what that's really talking about is the speed at which the lithium comes out of the brine. And if you can get the lithium out of the brine faster, you need less equipment. So your capital bill is smaller and your operating cost is smaller. And that is absolutely fundamental. And you would sacrifice that over the quality of the concentrate and even in some part the the, the concentration so you want to have a high recovery so you the, the number one aspect is i think recovery you want to see a high recovery because you have to take all the energy and effort to get the lithium molecule to the surface you want to maximize that by getting the the most lithium you can out of that that you that is possible so that that is measured by the recovery so seeing 94 percent recovery is very very high um, and then if you can do that at faster rates which is what we were able to demonstrate um, means we can build smaller equipment so you get the same amount of lithium out but you have to build smaller amount of equipment and those will boast very well for us when we look to complete the economics for this project the quality of the concentrate is a bonus there's a lot of systems down stream of this because you can you further refine that lithium concentrate to something that becomes battery grade so we would sacrifice a bit lower lithium in that um, and a bit pure a uh, bit less quality um, because you have to refine it anyway if you can reduce the size of your capital equipment for the, the process and we've, we've explained that in the news announcements where that we've put out that the real focus on this was that flow rate ratio and seeing that increase and we've seen huge uh, um, amount of increase than we anticipated we anticipated a ratio of three and the results we put out for the third party are nine and we're going to put ours out soon that are going to be even higher so that fundamentally enables us with confidence to go forward and complete the uh, pre-feasibility study that's currently underway okay i'm glad you brought that up what let's talk about the pre-fees what's the timeline associated with this yeah, so it's currently underway right now. Um, we're working the FLUR as we've announced. Um, it's likely that we'll be completing it um, internally by the end of this year, early, early next. Um, then we have to do the process of writing it into the standard NI4301 format. So we're anticipating uh, sometime in Q1 to have that uh, that published. And I think that's a big catalyst for us because um, it, it enables the, the movement forward in a lot of ways. It enables us to start the the feed, the uh, feasibility study that enables us to start in earnest going to, to talk to uh, potential partners to look for financing for this project and all of the other aspects that are important um, as, as 2024 for me and the corporate team will be will be more focused on how we're going to fund the development of this and looking at the project finance side and, and you need that document as a critical piece to that. Um, so that we can um, get this thing uh, shovel ready in 2025 and in operations by 2026. So let's move on and touch on your finances and your balance sheet. How much cash do you currently have on hand and how will you allocate that in the coming year? Yeah, so we've got about 40 million in cash uh, in the bank right now. Um, we also have about 20 million of uh, unspent 
government grants that are still to come in. So we're at a working uh, capital of about $60 million. Um, <clears throat> the majority of that is gonna be allocated to um, a couple of things. One, obviously moving into the feasibility study next year, doing all the engineering for that, that's pretty critical. We'll be staffing up a little bit to add a couple of project and process engineers to assist with that, that big task. And we're also contemplating uh, doing some demo next year um, and more details of that will come out to the market as we as we uh, solidify those plans um, to uh, to look at what that full process looks like operating that in Alberta. Um, and then obviously some of the most important activity uh, that's going to happen is is as I've talked about some of the corporate activities we're increasing our uh, corporate team uh, here at E3, adding some sophistication to it to go out and uh, do a couple of things. One is um, look to find strategic partners to develop this project. Um, we've built a very strong reputation in the industry of uh, committing to things and getting them done. And I think that bodes well um, to find good partners that are willing to work with good companies to uh, find offtake um, and, and uh, other types of strategic arrangements. Um, and that all leads us to um, a project financing that we'll be completing, uh, you know, working on through this next year. And then usually those wrap up once the feasibility study is out um, and the final sort of um, I's and T's get crossed post that. So, um, you know, that takes us into 25 and and uh, and then we can be shovel ready. So, it, you know, next year is, is going to be very, very busy for us. Um, 2023 was the catalyst year. Um, the success of the pilot was fundamental. Um, we're very excited to see that. Uh, the the pre-feasibility though is is the launching pad. We get that out, we get that going. Um, the project from there just moves forward um, and we get more and more certain that we're gonna start uh, doing the all important thing that every company needs to do at some point, which is generate revenue. And I think that for us, getting this plant built and operating by 26 is, uh, is a very strong goal. And Chris, when you talk about strategic partners, um, I want to get a better sense of who that might be. Would that be other lithium producers or OEMs or what? Yeah, I think we're, we're open. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, one of the definitives that we need are customers. Um, and to get project financing, one of the critical aspects is to have uh, offtake contracts, but this is what the industry does. This is standard course. Uh, most of lithium today is sold under some uh, direct sales contract. And so that's the number one goal ultimately is, is to find those customers. Um, through that though, the industry has seen um, more of a strategic relationship with those. I, I think they bode really well because things like qualification. Um, so if you have a more of a direct relationship with your customer, um, that's not just a sales contract, um, that bodes well for your qualification, for getting the product into the batteries, for getting through that process. And, uh, and working more closely with them on a day-to-day -day basis and not just uh, you know, signing the contract and then delivering the product in, in 2026. And, and I think that that is where the industry is going right now um, because I think that the shortness of supply and that, that supply differential that the market is predicting and it's, it's just fundamental to the fact that it takes a lot longer to build a mine than it does a uh, battery plant um, and so being able to secure your supply to enable that your cars have lithium in them is fundamental to some of these companies. And it's not just OEMs, it's also the battery companies are, are looking at this very closely as well. Um, and so, you know, I think that E3 offers itself up as a good partner 
um, in a good stable jurisdiction um, will be able to uh, supply securely the, the materials of need. And then looking at around the industry, you know, I think there's lots of opportunities to talk to some other companies that aren't necessarily customers as well. Um, you know, there's a, there's a plant that needs to get built. And I think E3 is looking at opportunities to find those people that can help us out and, uh, and get this, the certainty of this project. And the conversations are already well underway, but again, the, the launching pad for most of this is that pre-feasibility study. So let's just summarize all of this for our viewers in terms of the uh, path or the road to production. You mentioned you want to go into production by 2026. So what are the next steps in order to meet that objective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next little while, we've got a bunch of news coming out um, about the success of the pilot. We'll be talking about, you know, the downstream processing, the uh, eventually we'll outline um, the technology that we plan to use for the first commercial plant, both for the DLE perspective, whether that's ours or third parties, as well as um, the uh, the downstream processing and all of that work to understand that. And, and it's a combination of those two pieces because they have to work together. Um, that, that work is ongoing right now as the results from the pilot uh, come in. We still have one more system that we're testing. So we're going to be waiting for that to come in um, before we, uh, we make the final assessment. Um, but all of the work is happening right now. I think that's very exciting because that locks a lot of things in. That certainty of that really drives us forward because then the next step is to work with those companies to design a commercial plant. Uh, so take the data we've gathered from the pilot and design something commercially. Um, and then we're looking at, as I mentioned, at a demo in 2024 as we do the engineering. Um, and then uh, we want to have the fees done sort of late 24, early 25. Uh, it's about the right time frame, 12 months from, from pre-fees to fees. Um, and then, you know, it's project financing, it's it's detailed design, you're ordering equipment, things start showing up on site, um, you start constructing, you start drilling wells, and, you know, you aim to be hopefully in operations before the end of 2026. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of work, but um, it's how the company creates value. And if this one project, this one plant, the first plant is successful, you know, the real opportunity for E3 is four more of those. And, and that opportunity, when you look around at what we have in terms of we've got land in Saskatchewan, we've got the Rocky property we haven't even looked at yet from any detail. I, I think there's a good um, uh, opportunity for some M&A uh, in the space as well. I think there's, you know, we have, we have a good cash balance um, that can't be said for all of the DLE companies out there right now that are a bit further behind us trying to get their projects running. And I think there's some good opportunities. Um, there's also a lot of interest in companies owning their own project, bigger companies um, in the space. And so I think there's there's lots and lots of opportunity for E3 to continue to create value, find uh, creative and clever ways um, to finance ourselves and to build this company into becoming um, what the, the ultimate vision is over time is a global lithium producer um, and supplying directly to the battery industry. So battery quality products, whether it be Hydroxide as our first plant, carbonate or even lithium metal in the future um, is a big goal for E3. Chris, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow in the coming weeks and months from E3 lithium? Yeah, I think as I mentioned, um, still a lot of uh, stuff coming out that solidify the plans of what E3 is up to. And I think um, what the investors can see from E3 is that um, the maturation that 2023 has enabled us to do is going to be outlined in its finality as we go through 
the next four months. So you're going to start to see a bunch of really strong announcements about technology providers and process paths forward. You know, obviously the the pre-feasibility study, um, very exciting stuff uh, all coming out. We're working on a bunch of corporate stuff that's harder to talk about um, that I think is equally exciting. Um, so I think there's just, there's lots and lots happening at E3. Um, and as I mentioned, we, we've got lots of capital at our disposal um, to deploy, to do uh, the right things. We're actually being very smart. We've always been good stewards of capital. We spend very little relative to our peers to get to the project to where we are today. And, and that will continue to, to move us forward as well as we um, look to develop this project and, uh, and minimize the dilution for our shareholders maximizing the value and that's fundamental on everyone's minds here at E3. Well it sounds like you and your team are going to be very busy in the coming weeks and months and I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today and providing a great overview of E3 Lithium. Yeah thanks for having me on today James. Hi, Howard. Thank you very much for joining us today. In addition to being an expert on battery metals, you're also well-versed in music, and you quite often make references to various rock and roll bands in your interviews and your research. And one of the greatest bands of all time, the Rolling Stones, just came out with a new album after 18 years. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this new album? Uh, I've been listening to it while walking my dog uh, pretty much every day uh, for the past, since it came out, I think. Uh, October 18th or 20th it was on uh, you know it was on my calendar because I knew it, it was coming out but they had released uh, the single Angry Lithium uh, ahead of time and at the time that they released that single I knew I was going to use that um, as a title for one of my lithium bowls so our, our, our most recent newsletter is entitled Angry Lithium uh, the Rolling Stonks you know to reflect the the, the bear market that we're in, you know, for lithium. But I would highly recommend um, soothing the pain uh, that lithium investors may feel in their portfolio by uh, listening to that entire album. And the highlight of which, in my opinion, is is the one that uh, Stevie Wonder and, and Lady Gaga are on, and that's the, uh, the sweet sounds of heaven. So I compared that to, uh, you know, when will lithium Nirvana, you know, return, uh, and we'll all be singing the sweet sounds of heaven um i don't know i can't predict that i don't know but uh it will come i'm confident it will come well i hope you're right howard so let's move on and discuss battery metals 2023 has been an interesting year for battery metals and lithium specifically after being up 140 percent in 2022 spot lithium is down anywhere from 50 to 60% this year. I, I kind of lost count on where it is, but the spot market has been very volatile. And I want to start right here and get your views on what's been happening within the spot lithium market and why it's been so volatile. Um, it's a it's a tough question that uh, we are grappling with. And I'll caveat um, this by saying, I, I listened to all the quarterly calls from the lithium producers. And what's clear from all of them uh, is that no one really wants to um, predict the short term, right? And, and none of them predicted this downturn. So if the smartest actors in the sector who are analyzing the market, who are in it day to day, um, can't predict, you know, what's going to happen in the short term or even the, you know, let's say even next year, um, who am I to to uh, 
give the, the, the right answer, um, but I'll try um, from what I know. And I'm sitting here in New York. My partner sits, uh, Rodney Hooper is in Mauritius. We are reading as much as we can, but we don't have people sitting in China. And China is uh, where all the information, um, you know, dominates, uh, you know. So we, um, you know, Rodney called a bottom in around April um, and there was a bounce uh, into kind of June and then it, it fell right back down and now it's continued to go down. So it's unclear why, but we, we just think that, you know, there's been a, a destocking, right? There's been a lot of inventory last year. So there, there are supply reasons and I guess there are demand reasons. So uh, the demand reasons seem to be coming into play more now. You're seeing a lot of headlines about slowing EV um, you know, from, from uh, you know, GM, you know, and Ford and, and Elon Musk was pretty dour on the on the quarterly call uh, a couple of weeks ago and high interest rates and wars and things like that. So there are, you know, potentially some demand drivers impacting it now. But I think the supply reasons, there was a, a lot of buildup. There's a lot of buying last year, you know, or maybe overbuying. And a lot of lithium is sitting inside cathode and inside cells, right? So um, there's inventory of lithium there, which meant that you didn't need to buy as much lithium, you know, uh, this year. So I think that's one component of it, but eventually that will be consumed, you know, uh, in, in, in battery, you know, as cars are sold and, and, and other um, products are sold. The other uh, avenue is that the very high prices incentivize all sorts of lithium supply that is not otherwise economic. The high end of the cost curve was profitable. So lipidolite in China, which is a very dirty and expensive way to make lithium chemicals, nevertheless, you know, became profitable and uh, plenty of companies in China uh, have started to you know, make and process that. And that's why we don't have a great line of sight. I don't know how much supply of lipid, like, like the public companies, you know, supply demand of hard rock and brine, you know, we can get a handle on, but like, how much lipidolite is available. Um, groups like Goldman Sachs and others uh, have been warning about it and they've been right, you know, that there's been a fair bit of supply, you know, coming from lipidolite. And also another sort of black hole um, is Africa and a lot of private companies that the Chinese are involved with, you know, in Zimbabwe, Nigeria, you know, we're learning now um, about a lot of the supply and a lot of it is just direct shipped or it's not even processed. Um, some of it's processed, um, but we saw this last cycle that, uh, you know, in China, you have a lot of conversion capacity. All through the pandemic, they continued to build conversion capacity and China has the skills um, to process all sorts of um, lithium uh, inputs. So, I mean, they've been developing this industry for a very long period of time. It doesn't just have to be, um, you know, 6% spodumene concentrate. If you look, um, the, the grade has gone down. You know, typically, you know, in the last down cycle, you know, it had to be 5.7%, 5.8%. Now, the average grade is like 5.3%. Um, that's the average grade. You know, mineral resources average grade out of uh, Mount Marion was like 3.7%. So even like 1% uh, 
you know, lithium, direct ship ore from Africa, they know how to process and will process in China. But how much of that supply has come combined with the lipidolite? Over the summer, you also have the China brines, um, our uh, production volumes, you know, are, are higher. You've also had supply from new suppliers in the spodumene market, uh, core lithium, uh, Siona and Piedmont through North America lithium, Sigma lithium in Brazil. You know, these are new units that have come into the market of spodumene. And you've had ramp ups, brownfield expansions from green bushes has had more supply, uh, mineral resources through Wajina has had more supply, Pilbara has ramped up production. So there's been a fair bit of supply. The demand has been growing. I forget exactly what the you know, overall size of the market is you know, today, but whatever, 800,000, 900,000 tons. Um, but the price has come down because spodumene is a commodity. You know, lithium, despite what others may say about specialty commodity focus, I mean, it, it's still a, it, 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 it's highly prone to the whims of supply and demand. What I just said was there's a lot of cross currents here, and I don't really know the answer, but this is my synthesis of the current cross currents. And do you think we found a level somewhere between twenty to thirty thousand dollars a ton? I hope so. My partner Rodney is is more the analyst than me. I, I say he's he's a CFA, uh, you know, buy side analyst. You know, um, he, he's a real analyst. I just play one on YouTube. Um, is kind of like I joke. <laughs> um, so uh, he believes that like 20,000 is kind of like a floor uh, or, or it's very difficult for the high cost, you know, the, the high end of the cost curve to make money at that price. That doesn't mean that uh, you can't see lower than $20,000 prices for periods of time, that there are times when producers will operate at a loss, uh, as we saw in the last down cycle. But the the price will should not go down to five thousand or six thousand dollars as it did in the last down cycle because the costs have gone up so much, right? We have had inflation, and you know, so he thinks twenty thousand is is a, a, a like and one thousand spodumene, you know, a number of players won't make money at one thousand spodumene, right? So he thinks it needs to be higher than that. His um, his long long term assumption, I think, is about two thousand spodumene and around 30,000 but at the current market environment he thinks like 20 uh, or so is a floor you say are we finding a level between 20 and 30 you know at 30 you'll make meaningful money right at 20 you know much less so so that that's a that's a reasonable range and right now we're like at 22 if i saw like the last fast markets uh number so that's a great overview of what's happening within the lithium sector i, I want to also get your thoughts on graphite i know you don't cover this or this is not an area of uh, expertise, but as you know, China recently imposed restrictions on graphite exports. It's a very critical component of EV batteries. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this and what also, what does this also mean for the lithium sector, if anything at all? I'll answer the question on the, on the lithium side. It, it doesn't necessarily mean anything today, but it is a warning right? That if they did this for graphite, they could do it for lithium. And if you're reliant on lithium and you um, and there's not ex-China supply of lithium, um, you'd be in trouble, right? And so that's the only corollary for lithium. 
graphite specifically, um, we, we, we looked at gra graphite for a number of years. Nouveau-Mon, you know, was a client of ours for a period of time. It's not now. Uh, last year, you know, we were trying to get our heads, head around graphite. And a problem with graphite is unlike lithium, there's no Albemarle and Livent and Allchem and SQM in the graphite sector. That is, you know, publicly traded companies who educate the market every quarter about what's happening in the graphite market, right? It's it's completely like China dominated, right? You have Syra, you know, one company that, um, you know, is producing, but it's not, um, they're not a huge player. And the market for graphite is bigger than lithium. And there's a very, and the EV component of it is much smaller, right? So the steel industry, so you have to analyze like so much, you know, in the graphite market, but it, it is more dominated by China than anything. Another factor is there's the synthetic graphite versus natural graphite and what's the preference. And, and um, so, but China very specifically, you know, this is a big pinch point, right? China does control this, all of this. And uh, if they are, I don't exactly know what the restrictions are specifically, but it just sounds like, it's another warning shot, just like they did with gallium and, and one other one in, in rare earth space. It's just a reminder to the world that, you know, being overly reliant on China for any kind of critical material is is, is not a good thing. And it's why the America's Inflation Reduction Act and, and other policies are being implemented on a global basis to um, change that. But it's going to take a really long time. Uh, but the graphite plays like Nouveau Monde and others are touting this. See, finally, we got some good news, you know, on graphite because the graphite price has been going down also a ton this year because there's oversupply. Why is there oversupply in graphite? I don't know. Um, you know, but uh, so, yeah, I don't know much more about graphite. Will we have, you know, uranium? I know you've been focused on uranium. Finally is having a great year after many false starts. Is this uh, a false start for graphite or is this like, okay, graphite will be the next uranium, you know, into 2024? I'm watching it, but uh, I, I, it's it's very complicated industry to analyze and it's not going to get easier. Uh, it's very opaque. And, and anyway, it's also a very difficult thing. We've seen this in the past. If the one lever is, you know, China turning on or off a commodity, right, it's very hard to get excited about the commodity because they're turning it off and then a year from now two years from now all of a sudden they turn it back on and they crush the price right so it, it, it i i'd like to have a better you know fundamental understanding of like supply and demand on graphite and synthetic natural and it's it's very complicated benchmark minerals does i think a very good job as good a job as anyone can in deeply understanding you know the graphite market but uh, I'm not convinced that this news is is going to turn graphite into a hot uranium market, but it it could. Um, and I'll let the stocks kind of tell me what's going on. Howard, I want to get your views on both strategic investments and also M&A within the lithium sector. And this has been an ongoing theme in 2023. Albemarle made a strategic investment in Patriot metals general motors made a very large investment into lithium americas and even with this pullback do you think this is this theme is going to continue into 2024 
I do. I think it should accelerate. I think um, Albemarle is going to be looking for other things, right? Uh, possibly in Australia, but possibly more more in, in Canada, possibly in Brazil. I'll say, and you mentioned General Motors and you mentioned Stellantis, you know, General Motors and Lithium Americas, that was for Thacker Pass, a clay project, Stellantis and Control Thermal. Uh, what, what we're noticing is that the incumbents, you know, Albemarle, SQM, you know, those who know the business the best are buying spodumene resources in Australia. Outsiders from the industry who have a big vested interest don't seem to be doing that. You know, they're going for unconventional flow sheets. Um, so they're, they're taking on some added risk, you know, in doing that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so that, that's just something I would say. I mean, Ford, in fairness, did have a $300 million debt facility into Liontown. So Ford has spread things around. They have some hard rock. They have some, you know, I think they, they're looking for offtake from Compass Minerals and, um, you know, in Utah. Um, you know, but Tesla has, Tesla has only done hard rock, right? And Tesla is building a hydroxide facility, you know, to be fed by hard rock principally. So, um, yes, I think we're going to see more m and I would love to see Tesla actually write a check, not just get offtake. Um, but LG Chem, you know, they wrote a check into Piedmont, you know, for 200,000 tons of spodumene over four years. So I think you're going to see more battery companies, maybe SK, Samsung, will we see Panasonic? I don't know. Toyota has written, you know, Toyota Susho has, has done some. So absolutely, there's been so much news and deal flow. Uh, you're you're going to see it. Um, but the, 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 the current game is in Western Australia with iron ore billionaires. Um, I've, I've been talking about this life is good and life in the fast lane, you know, L-I-F-E, you know, um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm taking a cue from the Eagles. <laughs> um, so life in the fast lane, uh, you know, is Gina Reinhardt. Um, uh, I put out a tweet, um, uh, uh, I forget exactly the, <laughs> the lyrics, but she's, uh, she has a nasty reputation, uh, you know, as a cruel dude, said she was ruthless, you know, said she was crude. So, you know, here she is um, thwarting Albemarle and she might be thwarting uh, SQM, uh, but overall she's invested maybe one, one and a quarter billion, $1.5 billion uh, in, in on-market purchases to block these companies. Um, but she generated, you know, 5 billion uh, just last quarter or in the first half or some crazy number. Like she's making so much money in iron ore through Roy Hill that, um, it's a very interesting dynamic. It's a rough and tumble, you know, entrepreneurial patriots, you know, in Western Australia that kind of are saying, you know, hey, foreigners, this is our turf, right? But you have her and Mineral Resources, Chris Ellison, who are kind of, you know, carving out, you know, the, the, the Western Australian spodumene dynamic, which is the most important dynamic in the lithium space. It's the, the Australia to China uh, relationship um, and, and, and is very strong. And there are new discoveries being made all the time. However bad the, the lithium price is going down, there, there's been a huge activity in, in exploration companies. Azure came out of nowhere 
Uh, and if you were invested in Azure, you would have made you know, 10, 20 times your money. So that side of the, like even in this bear market, you know, Rodney and I are, are very focused on early stage exploration, uh, in particular in uh, spodumene plays, and not just in Western Australia, but what has also become, you mentioned Patriot, you know, the hottest area, one of the hottest areas in lithium is uh, James Bay, Quebec, after Quebec being, you know, the bastard child of the lithium industry with the, with the prior failures of, of Namaska and, and North American lithium. But North American lithium's restart, you know, has put Quebec back on the map and uh, Patriot and Winsome, you know, exploration success. Uh, I think you're going to see, you're going to see more of that, I think you, you so you're going to see strategic more strategic interest uh, come to Canada with Quebec, you know, at the top of the list, you know, maybe Ontario, maybe you know some other jurisdictions, uh, provinces, um, and I think you're going to start seeing them come into Brazil as well because there have been meaningful you know projects uh, uh, that have discovered resources and in Sigma's case, there's in production. You made a lot of interesting points there. I guess one of the things I want to ask you about is why SQM and also Albemarle, why not focus on South America? Why did they go to Australia and why haven't they come to Canada yet? Well, they, you know, Albemarle did make an investment in Patriot, but there's many other companies. Um, so South America, uh, you know, SQM is... Um, has a, a challenged relationship with their uh, country, you know, their government, um, and you know, policy matters. And you know, uh, Boric, you know, is changing policy in Chile. Uh, so, I think it, it, what's interesting is that um, Lithium Power International, which is a former client of RK Equity. Uh, a very advanced permitted brine in Chile, right? Very high grade, very high quality is basically being sold not to SQM, right? But to Cadelco, the state, you know, copper company for like $300 million. So you're seeing SQM is, is paying for the equivalent, like Azure as a company you know, is 40% owned by Mark Creasy. So like when you buy Azure, you're only getting 60% of the asset. I think, um, I forget exactly, the, the, their bid was like 1.4, 1.5 billion, but for 100% of that project, it's effectively $2.5 billion or, or thereabouts. You know, so they're spending that money on a, on a company that doesn't even have a resource yet. It's gonna be many, many, many years into the future um, where they could have just bought Lithium power in their Maracunga asset, like for three hundred million dollars. So why is, is is SQM not buying that, right? Because I, I you know there was only one bidder for um, lithium power, and that was Cadelco, right? Because the government policy, like, is so good assets go cheap if government policy is bad, and the government, you know, doesn't like it. it in my opinion, Chile's pain, you know, is Australia's gain and will also be Canada's gain. And I think Albemarle looks the same way. Albemarle has like struggled to ramp up production. Also, brines are hard. Okay, brines are hard. They take a long time, right? You, you, Lithium Americas is just starting to be in production with Ganfeng, which is like seven or eight years after Oracobre. 
okay, or, or all chem. Uh, and they started at the same time. So there's lots of projects in Argentina, but Brian's take a long time. Political risk in Argentina is high. Um, and that's why I think you're seeing the incumbents who have existing customers that, you know, that they, Hard Rock is more scalable, you know, uh, it is sustainable, um, it's secure, you know, I have these like six S's, it just, Western Australia is a great jurisdiction, you can get permitted there, there's a skill set of people who can do things there. In Argentina, it, they're very remote areas, very high altitude. It's very, you know, it, it could rain a lot one year and then it messes up. Brines are just, they're a challenge. They're low cost. Fundamentally, like if you get it all right, they'll be low cost, but they're a they're big headache. And, um, and so I think that's the reason, you know, but and I'm... But if I, if I saw something different, if I saw all of a sudden that they were buying into Argentina, then, you know, maybe there would be a rush into Argentine assets again. Um, Rio Tinto kind of came in there. A number of players did go into, um, you know, into uh, Argentina. But I think China will be there, right? Like, the, the, like China is OK. They, they, they act. Yes, they want to make profits, but your know, security of supply matters. And um, I think you'll... China will be more comfortable with the evolving rules in Chile than a, a Western actor like uh, Albemarle. And then SQM, just through Julio Ponce, et cetera, has a challenged relationship with with the government. And they're negotiating, you know, uh, a, a long term uh, you know, update to their I think their their lease expires in 2030. And, you know, th th this this investment in Azure to me is a, is a tell that. You know, those negotiations aren't necessarily going too well. And do you think it's just a matter of time before SQM gets involved in a Canadian asset? I, yes, I think it's just a matter of time. But I, I you know, we have some intelligence, you know, from that they were looking seriously, you know, this year. Uh, but weren't going to make an investment this year, right? Like, so, like, but next year they might, right? Or the year after they might. Uh, but they, they were very astute. They found, they found Azure early, you know, and got 19.9%, you know, quite early at a low price. So the, the, the average, you know, to get the rest is, um, you know, will be lower, but like the, the price that they're paying, this 2.5 billion or whatever the number is approximately, is, orders of magnitude larger than what they paid to get into their Mount Holland asset, which they're partnered with West Farmers on. They basically invested $150 million to get 50% uh, of that project. They have had to invest a lot more now, obviously, to build the mine and, 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 and the hydroxide plant, but just the cost of entry to get control of the asset in 2017 was much cheaper than what they have to pay now. So the fact that they're paying as much as they're paying now, you know, reflects their optimism on the long-term lithium fundamentals. So that's a, a good sign. You know, it represents that negotiations aren't going so well in Chile, in my opinion. Um, and, the, and, and it represents that they, they want to be in hard rock. 
you know, they don't want to be in clay. They don't want to be in DLE brine. Um, and uh, they don't want to be in South America. If you remember, they came into Lithium Americas in Argentina and then they left, right? So they're not, the Chilean Argentines, they're not interested, right? You know, so, um, but it will make sense for them, you know, as the North American and European markets evolve, they're not going to want to just, they, they can't just process in China, right? Hard rock from Australia, right? And I don't know, I mean, maybe we'll see, they're building a hydroxide plant in, you know, with West Farmers that's taking a really long time. I think they're struggling with it. Uh, SQM doesn't really have hard rock mining skills they, 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 in a meaningful way. They've had to learn spodumene concentration skills and that's hard in its own right. And then learning to process from the hard rock to hydroxide, you know, in Western Australia, that. Albemarle has struggled, you know, with Kemerton. Tangshi has struggled with Quanana. So, um, but they recognize the market's growing very fast and they want rock. They want hard rock. So, it, it, so that would make, it would make sense that they would want to come to Quebec, you know, in time. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing SQM do what they did with Azure, maybe find a company and, and buy a 19.9% stake, you know, that's focused in Canada. And I would bet it would be in Quebec first. Because, because we're on the subject of M&A, I want to ask you about Exxon and Chevron. They recently made very large acquisitions, 50 billion plus, which is like the entire size of the whole lithium sector. But do you ever envision seeing an energy company investing or buying uh, a lithium company? Um, yes, and uh, you've seen there were rumors or talks that Exxon had bought a private company, Galvanic, which is in you know the Arkansas region, DLE story uh, for like $100 million. Um, E3 Lithium received a $5 million investment from Imperial Oil, which is a subsidiary of Exxon. So, and, and Coke is in the oil business and they have invested in Standard Lithium, $100 million, and they invested in Compass, $250 million. So I think the oil and gas companies are, are comfortable, more comfortable with liquid lithium, right? So these oil field brines, I think Exxon should buy Albemarle, right? You know, because in the past, Albemarle traded at a very high multiple, like 10, 12, 15 times EBITDA, EBITDA, where the oil companies were trading at five or six times. So it would not be accretive on that multiple basis. But now the multiple of Albemarle has fallen so much that it probably would be accretive. Um, uh, you know, and they're in the chemical business, the refining business. So it, it would make sense. But the fact that big oil is merging with itself shows two things. Uh, on the one hand, it shows they believe fossil fuels have a future, you know, for the, a long time. Um, on the other hand, it could be a reflection of like, well, it's going to be a declining industry overall, and we now need to be bigger, right? And rather than spend a ton of money on exploring for new finds, uh, it, it's cheaper to buy existing. So um, it, it, it's I don't view it as necessarily a negative to the, the lithium space, but uh, I, 
you know, I'm not confident that we're going to see big oil into the space. I thought we'd be seeing more big mining into the space, and I think we will. I think Rio Tinto has made some, you know, small investments in Quebec on an exploration side. I think they have a bit of buyer's remorse. They spent $825 million on Rincon in Argentina, and they're realizing that's, you know, going to be a, uh, you know, a challenge. But why Rio Tinto hasn't played in you know the western australian market that's their backyard I, i've thought all like for years that they they could have um uh i think they were late you know to, to some degree but you, you, or they could have gotten really like in the last downturn they could have picked up assets for for almost nothing um now they're looking at the market and they're saying oh valuations are too expensive they're too frothy whatever so they're they're watching and waiting but i, I think valuation now is a great time to for them to enter and try to pick up some some assets like high quality assets like album or live Event. once that merger is done with all chem at the end of this year uh it could be interesting to them um simon moore's at benchmark minerals made a, a comment that like with the lithium prices down so much, you know, there's like a six to nine month window now where the OEMs, auto OEMs, battery OEMs who have been, you know, reluctant because prices were so high, they should now pounce, um, you know, while the price is low and start cutting deals and writing checks to uh, a number of these development companies. Um, but with GM and and uh, like Tesla just doesn't seem to want to write checks. Everyone I'm speaking to uh, is telling me they're just they haven't gotten there that they're going to write checks for upstream mining. Um, and GM, yes, they wrote a check. Half of their check went to Lithium Americas, but on the other hand, now they're slowing down their EV investment. You, you know, is all of this kind of negativity that the UAW you know strike has raised their operating costs will raise their operating costs and they're not making money on evs so are they going to rush to secure supply it's hard hard to see like i'd like to see gm finalize their investment with lithium americas you know and um i, I hope they do and when they when and if they do uh you know maybe others will will follow but big oil i'm um i think I don't know. We'll see. Very interesting points, Howard. As we wrap up, we began this discussion talking about music, and, and I'm going to end it the same way. I see a verse from a very well-known song behind you, on behind your left shoulder. What's the significance of that? Um, so Bob Marley, uh, um, Three Little Birds, uh, Don't Worry About a Thing, because Every Little Thing is going to be All Right is actually my ringtone. Um, and, you know, when I saw this, I don't remember exactly where I found it, but I, I, I figured I had to have it. Um, and I'm in my kitchen, which I'm usually podcasting in my guest house, which has a different background, but um, I sometimes uh, uh, interview from here, but this is where I do all my Zoom calls. So whenever I'm having someone here, rather than have a, you know, a, a, a fake background, it's just a subliminal message here and a subliminal message to all your viewers who are invested in lithium that uh you know don't worry you know about a thing because every every little thing will be all right um in due course i don't i hope it'll be in 2024 um uh, but 
if not after that. The long-term thesis for lithium is still very much intact. Um, be selective, you know, maybe speculate on some early stage juniors because like I get comfort from SQM and Albemarle and Gina Reinhardt and Chris Ellison writing big checks based on the long-term thesis. Well, that was a great discussion and that's a great way to wrap it up. And I want to thank you very much for providing your insights today and making time. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me, Jimmy. A real pleasure. Well, that concludes the conference and we thank you for taking the time to be with us. We have some amazing conferences coming up, so be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Bloor Street Capital, and hit the notification button so you can always stay up to date with future events. Thanks again for your support.